Well, this is Jim Cameron. I wrote and directed this film back in uh, 83 and directed it in 85 through 86. It was released in, uh, in 86, the summer of 86, July 17th, if I'm not mistaken. It started as a uh, treatment. I was having a meeting with David Geiler and, and Walter Hill talking about another project. And uh, that pitch was not going very well. I could tell by their kind of sagging expressions that they didn't like any of my ideas. But they had read my Terminator script and they wanted to work with me on something. And I was sort of getting up and sort of making my way toward the door. And David Geiler, the, uh, uh, one of the producers of the first film, said, well, we do have this other thing. And I said, oh, what's that? He said, uh, Alien 2 and uh, all the kind of pinball machine lights and bells went off inside my head, but I maintained an absolutely straight face and said, well, you know, that could be interesting. And I suggested that I uh, write a, uh, a quick treatment, a quick outline, just to give them an idea of what I might do with it. So I raced home and stayed up for sort of three days straight, drank about eight pots of coffee and, and wrote a, I think a 40 or 50 page treatment. Really what I did was I adapted a story I had already written, which was called Mother, which was a kind of an, an alien on a space station kind of story. And it had uh, the power loader machine and some other stuff in it. I had written this treatment maybe a few months earlier. So I adapted it and dropped Sigourney's character in and dropped a bunch of Marines into it and um, created basically in that one kind of quick stroke, created all the character names, you know, Gorman and Hicks and Vasquez and all those folks. And um, dropped it on them a couple days later and uh, I think they felt like they'd hit the jackpot. That was exactly the film they wanted to make. So uh, they authorized me to go ahead and start writing the script. And the only problem was that very same day, I landed the job to write the script for uh, the second Rambo film. So I called them up and asked David Geiler what I should do. And he said, well, don't be stupid. Take both jobs. So I took both jobs. And I also had to do a rewrite of my Terminator script because we were going to start production in February. So I basically had a three-month period where I had to write three scripts. So I decided that each script was going to be two hours long, so it would be 120 pages. So I figured out the total page count, whatever that is, I guess 360 pages, and I divided the total number of waking hours I had during that three-month period by 360 and figured out how many pages per hour I had to write. And then I just wrote that many pages per hour. I'm Gail Ann Hurd. I produced Aliens. I'm Stan Winston, and I created the creature effects and the alien effects for uh, Aliens. Now, I remember Jim trying to figure out how he could make the beginning of this movie impressive, and he said he wanted to use a robotic laser, and it was an afterthought, and it wasn't in the budget, and I remember having the Gall to say to him, if you want to use it, you have to pay for it. Oh. And he did. Is that right? This robotic arm and the laser came out of his pocket. I wanted to create a seamless blend coming from the, the end of the first film into the beginning of the second film. And I certainly wanted to honor all the things that were good about the first film. So, you know, I went to school on, on Ridley's style of photography which was actually quite a bit different from mine because he used a lot of long lenses, much more so than I was used to working with. But, uh, you know, the smoke, the backlight, the textures, the way he, he forces the frame by putting a lot of uh, equipment and machinery and foreground pieces and so on. I really studied all that. 
because I wanted there to be a stylistic continuity. Now, I also wanted to have my own style, you know, uh, grafted onto that so that I, you know, I felt enough of a sense of, sense of authorship to make it worth doing. Yeah, uh, this is Robert Skotak. I was the uh, visual effects supervisor on the film. My name is Dennis Skotak, and I was supervising director of photography on this project. This is Pat McClung. I was the model shop supervisor in the film. I believe they're wearing modified costumes from Outland, or the basic suit, I think, is from Outland. Then it's been redesigned, and they put some stencils on it. This is glitter, I think, uh, micro-glitter and uh, Fuller's Earth blown on there. The other thing I remember about this scene is that the batteries and the flashlights kept going out. And you would think this would be an easy scene to do. But as with everything in this movie, it was harder than it looked. There are no easy scenes with Jim. Is that nice dissolve the contour of the earth matching her face? When we shot this, which is sort of a matte painting combined with miniature and some perspective, some perspective gags going on there, um, we used a clip of Sigourney's face in the viewfinder to line up the curvature of the earth so we had a nice kind of match. When I wrote the piece, I wrote it obviously with Sigourney in mind for the character. I was told, of course, that she was on board and I should just toddle off and write the film when in fact no deal had been made with her whatsoever. <laughs> so here was a script that was written that everybody wanted to make in which you know she was in every scene and uh, they hadn't made a deal with her yet, so that's why she got her first big payday of her acting career. She got a million bucks, which was a big deal at that time. She might have been the first actress to get a million dollars for a movie, like in movie history. But it was all because it was kind of mishandled by the producers. Everybody got committed to a script where she was the main character and they hadn't made the deal. Of course, she was worth every penny of it and, and more. I think when people saw the film, they, they realized that. I mean, I knew what a phenomenal actor she was. I had her, I'd never met her. I had her picture up on the wall while I was writing the script. You know, I just went off the character that had been created in the first film, took her, took her much further. Now, of course, this is Paul Reiser, and, uh, you know, I certainly had no idea what a, what a great comic actor uh, he would, he would uh, prove to be, and certainly that's how people think of him not as a dramatic actor, but I, I just read him just in a lineup of, of actors in the normal casting methodology, and I just thought he was a really interesting guy, that he could play this really sincere but slightly smarmy guy who could then turn evil. What happened was you had drifted right from of course, this is a, a dream sequence, but you don't know that yet. I remember uh, from the premiere screening of the film that the uh, sort of incomplete chestburster scene here really got people cranked up and put them on edge, kind of set the tone for the whole movie that we were, you were here to be messed with, you know, which is a good way to start off, I think. Now, the way you get a cat to hiss like that is you put another cat close to it, which I had no idea. I didn't know what you did to make a cat do that, but it turns out to be that standard procedure. You just bring another cat that it doesn't know close to it, and it'll do that. This scene was shot really quickly. It was uh, pretty much all handheld. 48 or 60 frames a second, I think 48. Of course, then Sigourney had to 
had to loop all her lines at, at slow speed, which is always odd. Our first effect in the movie. It's great because it's what you expected to happen and then it's not what you expect. She was actually under the bed for that, uh, that sequence and we build an artificial body from her neck down and someone is actually under the bed with her and I can't remember who the lucky guy was that uh, created the illusion of the uh, chest burster pushing its way through her. And it really sets up the character. Mm -hmm. You know, this is her nightmare. And you know that she never wants to have to face it in real life again because she's haunted by it in her dreams and her nightmares. The idea was to create an effect as, as if you're outdoors and when the camera dollies over, you see it's just a video projection. I think the original idea is that if they lived in outer space that there would be places you could go to get a feeling that you were back in a natural environment. So that plate that was behind her was shot out in the garden at Pinewood Studios. It was a VistaVision plate. And originally there was supposed to be a birdhouse in the background in that garden and she would have Jones on her lap and a bird would fly in and Jones would jump up and hit the screen and that's how the audience would find out that she wasn't actually on the earth. You just stick to that, I think we'll be fine. The thing to remember is there are going to be a lot of heavy... Here's a scene that was cut from the release version of the film, which became the source of a little bit of controversy with Sigourney, because she later said in print that she had based her entire character throughout the film on this scene, and she was devastated when it was removed. Although at the time she first screened the film, she told me she didn't like the scene, and, and then we wound up reading a lot of interviews where she had a big problem with that. But we didn't really have a chance to talk about it because we were on such a tight post-production schedule and we were working in England and uh, kind of in isolation. Two years ago. Real sorry. Even though I liked the symmetry of the fact that she had had a daughter and lost her daughter. That's Sigourney's mother, by the way. So there's an interesting inversion here. She's looking at the face of her mother but playing it as her daughter. But as an actor, it allowed her to work the connection because I always say all my movies are love stories. This one is about parental love and protectiveness and a sense of duty and uh, the ultimate sacrifice that a person would make given that sense of duty. That was a nice touch. That was Sigourney's idea. This scene was one of the seminal scenes in the movie and was one of the ones that had to be deleted and omitted from the theatrical version because of length. We didn't have multiplexes back then, and there were only so many showings a day that you could have of a film, and we had to get it no more than two hours and ten minutes in order to get the maximum number of screenings per day. Peter Lamont was the production designer. He came up with a very simple and austere look for our future sets. I watched this film recently, and I was actually kind of amazed at how little we see of the conventional future world as opposed to the spacecraft interiors and so on. But when she's, uh, when she's on Earth, she's actually on Gateway Station here. She hasn't returned all the way to Earth. She never sets foot on Earth in the whole series of films, which is kind of interesting. But this is as close as she gets until the end of the fourth movie where she's re-entering the atmosphere. But uh, this is Earth for all intents and purposes. This is everyday life circa a couple hundred years from now. And uh, you know, Peter came up with a very Spartan kind of look. It's not overworked at all, which I think was quite clever. And we wanted to do it 
kind of minimalist. We didn't have scenes of her walking around corridors and so on. We didn't bother to try to create a world because we weren't interested. We were interested in the, in the through line of her story and her kind of character's dilemma and problems. The fact that she's not believed, that she understands there's this great threat. With the same aesthetic motif applied to the costume, we didn't want to suggest a wildly separated future from our present one. This might be one of the first science fiction movies where you're a couple hundred years in the future and men still wear coats and ties. The thinking on that was people will still wear coats and ties. They may not look exactly the same. We did a little kind of Nehru collar on the jackets, turned them up, you know, it's like no big deal, but it's a subtle change. Because we wanted to have a place to go. We wanted the space environment, once they get to the colony planet, to be exotic. And so we didn't want to overwork the Earth environment. We also wanted to understand who these people were, and a suit is a suit. And I mean, these characters are suits, and we wanted to reinforce that. If everybody's running around in Star Wars-type costumes, it's a little harder to relate to who they are as characters. So I guess I was thinking more of a writer than a designer when I was, you know, making my picks of what these things should look like from, you know, amongst the suggestions made by the costume designer. On a technical question, Denny, did they shoot at 25 frames per second for the video, all the video playback stuff? Do you remember? I believe they did, because the 24-frame issue is messy, and uh, it can be done, but it's, it's such a big procedure that uh, shooting 25 frames per second on the film camera matches the, puts the, uh, the video in sync with the film camera very easily. There's a slight speed differential, but it's, uh, it's almost impossible to perceive. And that was because in Britain they have a different television system. Right, yeah. 25 frame per second system. Yeah, 625 resolution instead of 525. As a matter of fact, later in the film we used, uh, there's some, some video footage that was used, uh, with the, the idea of it appearing on video monitors, but uh, the uh, PAL system is, uh, is better than NTSC, which is our system here in the United States. And uh, it almost looked like a slightly too fuzzy version of film. It, it's sort of in the weird in-between. And it uh, looked like one of the shots in the film looks like it's not as good as it should be for film, but it wasn't quite obvious that it was video. At some point, uh, Jim realized that and decided to uh, make the uh, video images noisier or break up more often so it was more obvious. Why don't you just check out LV? The tag of this scene is going to be a throw to this big sequence that takes place on the colony, which is before the aliens attack, and that's cut out of the release version. So this uh, coming up is the biggest single change from the release version of the film. And it's an entire reel. And the funny thing was, I'll never forget Gail Hurd, who was my wife and my producer at the time. We were confronted with this issue of how do we reduce the running time of the film by close to 20 minutes. And I just couldn't see it. I just could not see how it was possible to do a cut here and a cut there, a few seconds, a bit of a scene, the tag of a scene, maybe. She said, I've been thinking about this for a few days. And I said, all right, well, go ahead. She said, reel three, which starts right here. You can take out reel three. And of course, I immediately rejected that. It's completely absurd. And then I thought about it. And reel three begins here, and it ends with Newt's scream when her father has the face hugger on his face. It works flawlessly. It's a brilliant cut, and I have to credit Gail with that. Now, I had poured a lot of energy into the design of this, of these scenes, and the alien derelict ship. I think the biggest problem for me was that I couldn't imagine this film without the cognitive tether to the first film of the alien derelict. But um, it turns out that it works perfectly, a little dialogue bridge, and, uh, and it works fine. I like this tractor a lot. 
And I wanted to see this tractor with this you know, kind of articulated leg design. This is one of my favorite effects. See the big tractor driving by, and uh, you see in the background, you see these people struggling to put a tarp over that tractor. That was done in perspective, actually. There were full-size people back there and a miniature in the foreground with just distance between them. And it put everything in, in camera all at one time without any opticals or any, anything uh, beyond that. The trick was that the actors had to act at double their normal speed of acting because the camera was running at 48 frames per second. We had a uh, Ritter fan on them to really kick those tarps around in excess of what it would be in real time, but because we were over-cranking, that motion would then look normal. The multi-wheeled uh, vehicle was, uh, at the very beginning, is a fifth-scale miniature that was radio-controlled that Jim designed. Remember, on the airplane coming over from uh, Los Angeles to London, he just doodled it, and uh, Ron Cobb, I believe, sort of fleshed it out. I don't ask because it takes two weeks to get an answer out here, and the answer is always don't, don't ask. ask. So what do I tell this guy? I always like these guys. I always like this kind of, you know, I'm just trying to get my job done. I'm a working stiff in a situation. The guys in the office back home never know what we're going through. And we wanted to set up the idea that there were kids around, that these were colonists that had come with their families and so on. This is a connection to the, uh, to the first film, the Whalen yutani Corporation. It was the, the big, bad, evil company that that uh, was responsible for everything that went wrong in the, in the first movie. So we just carried that tradition on. You know, ultimately, I think that what this scene shows is that at that time I was not as, and maybe never, not as good at Ridley Scott at what Ridley does best because the suspense and the creation of the atmosphere and so on of this planet is done so much better by him and his film. And so, in a way, the removal of this scene makes the picture stronger because it puts it more on its own turf. You know, we tried to recreate the, uh, the alien ship, but I don't think we were quite as successful as he was. Of course, in his film, it was a major set piece, and in ours, it was, it was a, just a stop along the way. Folks, we have scored big this time. This derelict ship had been in Bob Burns' driveway for a while. He'd been given it by Fox, and it was starting to fall apart. We had to put it back together and fix it up. Fortunately, though, it existed, so it saved us a lot of model work because it was there and mostly intact, you know, than building from scratch. Shouldn't we call in? My name's Carrie Hinn, and I was Newt. My name's Chris Hinn, and I was Tim Jordan. It's kind of cool to see what James Cameron sort of had in mind, because at the time we didn't really know what was going on. Little do we know at this time that our life would change when they came back from inside. Yeah, that was the first time we got to see the facehugger was when we opened the door and we saw it on uh, Jay, who played our dad's neck. I was really sad, not only for my brother that this got cut out, but also for everyone watching it because it shows everyone why I can't stand the aliens, which I think is pretty obvious anyways, but once you find out that my dad was the one who brought it back to the colony. It kind of shows how uh, Sigourney and Newt get the connection to as the mother-daughter and they had the same enemy. Yeah. And this was interesting to see because it wasn't something we saw filmed. When it happened, they just got out of the car and that, and that was, was it. it. Yeah. yeah. Kind of ties it to the first one because it's the same place that they went in the first movie, first alien. We have another one of our first creature effects that uh, 
It's like the introduction of the of the, the face hugger. All these things were so daunting to me psychologically because these had now become iconic characters, the face hugger and the chest burster and the and the warrior aliens. Of course we you know the Queen was brand brand new, but we also wanted each of these to have their own life in this movie and at the same time be legitimate to the original. So to the very discerning eye, if you look at the facehugger from the original, from Alien, and you look at the facehugger in Aliens, there are subtle differences in the detail, more attention to detail as, as far as the, uh, the creature itself. That was genuine scare. I didn't know that they were opening at that time. Yeah, it kind of freaked us both out. And this is where James Cameron asked me to scream for the first time ever. And I screamed and he just, everyone stopped and stared. Can shatter a glass with her scream. I always liked that sound cut. We spent a lot of time on the sound on this picture. The picture was mixed by Graham Hartstone right at Pinewood Studios in England. And I remember mixing it for a long time, I think seven weeks. And there's some really nice sound work in this picture. And I learned a lot doing that because my only prior experience with a mix was on uh, Terminator and that had been done really rapidly. I'm thinking it was done in sort of four or five days. Not a very sophisticated mix at all, and I didn't know anything about it. So I learned an awful lot from Graham and the, uh, the Pinewood mixers. This is Bill Hope, he's a Canadian actor. He was working in England at the time. So again, here you see her whole world is really created by a pretty simple little set of a corridor and, um, and her kind of little efficiency apartment on the space station. It's not specifically stated, but the intention here is that she's never made it back to Earth. She's just stayed on Gateway Station and gotten a job as a dock worker, machine operator. Foreshadowing. Hiding loaders and forklifts and such. What does that mean? Well, I guess we'll see if we watch. This is exciting. Yeah, I think the intention was that, you know, I mean, like I'm a child of the 60s, and, uh, you know, the prevailing myth at that time was that the Vietnam War was all about protecting American business interests in Southeast Asia. And, you know, of course, we wanted to have the evil corporation here. I think the idea is that the corporation has the contract to establish colonies in much in the sense that the, you know, the Dutch, Dutch East India Company might have controlled that whole area of the world, and that colonial marines don't work directly for them, but are called in as a security force whenever the interests of the parent country of wherever Whale and Yutani is, although it's probably a multinational, given the name. I never really got into that relationship, although I think your model for that is, you know, colonial America or the Caribbean back then, where, you know, military uh, detachments were sent as, as security for the major corporations who were bringing back the resources and wealth to the parent uh, European countries. So it's probably some kind of very entangled relationship. I don't think the Marines report directly to the company. And you can see there is a separate chain of command when they're on the mission. They don't take orders from Burke, but Burke certainly makes very strong recommendations to them. So they definitely have a lot of clout. If you go, come on, that's a second chance kill. I think personally for you would be To be perfectly honest, at the time I made the movie, I knew diddly dick about how big corporations worked anyway. So to me, they were just this big shadowy entity. <laughs> <laughs> I know an awful lot more about it now. And I actually nailed it, I think, pretty close. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that, that, you know, if you look at, if you look at places of major 
corporate culpability like say the Bhopal disaster in India where 3,000 people were killed because a major international corporation cut corners on safety. You know, there's many, many instances throughout history where just by kind of negligence, corporations have been responsible for many, many deaths, but always kind of off the radar, always in distant remote places. So if it's going to happen, it's going to happen on a colony. Now, obviously, this is the heart and soul of the movie here, which is Ripley's own internal demon. I think Sigourney's just great in these scenes. Now, interestingly, Sigourney herself had an issue with my take on her character. She didn't think that Ripley hated the alien. We had a long kind of creative dialogue about that, and I said, no, 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 she hates him. You know, she hates the alien that killed all her crew members, put her through the most traumatic, you know, event of her life and she wants to see them destroyed. But I think the way I finally sold it to her was, because Sigourney's kind of very liberal in her views, is that Ripley would want to prevent the kind of trauma that she had been through happening to anybody else, and she knows that there are colonists on that planet, so I displaced it outside of her. When in reality, I saw it as a very straightforward kind of revenge story. But I think that that was beneficial because that creative tug of war between us actually caused me to sort of think outside of my kind of limited box as a writer at that time and see that there was, you know, her motivation was on a higher plane as well. She was acting out of a sense of, of duty. And that spoke very much to some of the themes I already had in the story with respect to her relationship with Newt. Once she finds out that the colony is lost and that battle is lost, she really only has one thing to fight for. And that's the little girl, the one survivor, because that's been her mission, is to go out there and try to try to help these people avoid what happened to her and her crewmates. You, you little shithead. You're staying here. The uh, Sulaco, this was a Sid Mead design that was fiberglass body, um, and some of the detailing uh, was based on that Sid Mead sketch. And then uh, Pat and Dennis and myself did a lot of the fine detailing for the, the front and the side, the tops, all the microscopic type detailing. So this was not a particularly large model. It was uh, about five, six feet long. I remember doing the detailing. We would do this after hours because we had the duties of being on the stage to shoot all this stuff, get everything organized. And once everybody went home, we'd go up to the little office, our little effects office, and uh, start another shift of uh, micro detailing and it was so cold we were wearing our winter coats I remember it was just hard to move around and use these tiny little exacto knives and these pieces of plastic that were maybe half the size of a comma on your average textbook sticking them on meticulously one after the other so this is a this is our biggest set I guess or the biggest volume I guess Obviously the hanging chains and all these little widgets and things. This is all inspired by the tone and feel of the opening scenes of Ridley's film. They're trying to create that same sense of uh, the ship having its own life and being a kind of an eerie, interesting place. We had a big budget cut, or we had some over budget. We had to save some money, and, and the budget for this set got cut. And Peter Lamont came up with a great idea. There's actually a mirror at the end of the set and there's another mirror behind the camera. I think we only had three of those hypersleep capsules, and we just mirrored them out to make them into, or I think we might have had four, we mirrored them out to make them into 12 or whatever it is. 
And if you're clever, you can see where the mirror is, but to be perfectly honest, I can't see it right now. You can see there's sort of two Vasquez's there. Another wonderful thing about Jim and a Jim Cameron film is uh, this <clears throat> wonderful loyalty that he has with people who have worked with him, actors that have worked with him. Carpenters that have worked exactly. with him. Bill Paxton was a <clears throat> carpenter on mm -hmm. Battle Beyond the Stars. And then one of the punks who loses his clothes to Arnold Schwarzenegger to Arnold and in the Terminator. Terminator. Lance was going to be the Terminator. Yes, and then became originally. the detective in yeah. that movie. And Michael Bean, of course. Kyle Reese. Uh, my name is Michael Bean. I played uh, Hicks, or if you've seen the DVD extended version, that's Dwayne Hicks. Uh, yeah, I'm Lance Henriksen. I played Bishop. I'm Jeanette Goldstein. I played Private Vasquez. And I'm Bill Paxton, and I played Private Hudson. And I just want to say it's great to see you guys. It's fun to get together. <laughs> <laughs> Every 20 years and uh, <laughs> look at movies I'm, we were I'm in. sure they'll put that on me. <laughs> no, no, seriously. Great camaraderie making this film. Look at Rico. I gave oh, up early on trying to have a physique against you guys. <laughs> Jeez, Rico has to walk That would have cut into my drinking time. <laughs> <laughs> I was really doing those. Were you standing on a box? No. Okay. We'll say this once and for Wow, look at that. Spunkmeyer. Yeah, in the yeah. pike, five by five. <laughs> I always liked the way she said that. Well, actually, you know, those are the hard ones. And What's those the I'm deal with Mark? What did Mark have on there? I don't remember him wearing Scars all those and bones. bones. Chicken bones. <laughs> Chicken yeah. bones hanging. Well, actually, I think oh, Jim had put, had put the... Um, the chin-up bar up there for to make the line you know, anyone ever mistaken you for a man work because in the t-shirt I don't think anyone would have mistaken so me for a man <laughs> so he said how can we make this line work it's not working so he said can you do the you know behind the neck chins I said yeah is this the scene where you guys do the thing with the, the knife? knife yeah I never yeah. understood you guys can tell me I remember saying it at the time you know well Jim what, what about you know and just like shut up Michael I know what I'm doing why he put my hand Your on hand on top of his. Okay. Okay. The what re was the, the reason? reason re what happened was that Jim had wanted me to do it like a demonstration, right? And we got right to the moment, and I said, Jim, you know, this is really going to be boring, man, because there's nothing to see me do that, you know? And I said, what if I put my hand on Billy's hand? And since I won't hurt anybody, I would never hurt him, that it would make it more interesting. I and never so, understood what Bill was so scared of because his hand was well, underneath. Is it underneath? I know, it should be on top. You, you, know, you know what happened with this? After the movie was done, we all went out and partied, right, and drank a lot of beer. And I remember a voice in the middle of the night saying, you got to come back because when they sped up the film, it looked phony. Yeah, we yeah. had to do this, Remember, Charles. we had to come back. And that's, that's when right. I caught your that's pinky right. by accident. Oh, Just damn. barely touched it. He almost, <laughs> yeah, I, he almost I, died. I had to have cuticle reconstructive cuticle surgery on that. But anyway, that's he, he, he was more of... interesting with the, on his hand. This effect, by the way, was... One of the first uses of this camera with a variable speed. Magic cam? Yeah, uh, which is used a lot now, but it was it was a first here. What's great about it is that you could start out at 24 frames per second, and then the camera, without having to cut and set up a separate camera, would automatically adjust for either faster or slower frame rate 
and then change go back. the aperture yep. while it was changing its speed. Do you remember Lance brought over his knives? Do you remember I this? I didn't. No, I didn't. I met Lance Henriksen at the airport when he was coming over from the U.S., and they have much stricter weapons laws in England. And he'd packed the knives that he'd been practicing that effect with in his suitcase. And he said, uh-huh. and, and what really makes me nervous is I'm always the one that they check to do the luggage search <laughs> when going through customs. And he said, stick with me. And he said it was the first time he'd gone through customs without having his luggage searched. And I thought, oh, that's great. Uh-huh. We're going to have an actor coming over here with concealed weapons. Was it an older model? Yeah, the Hyperdyne system's 128.2. Well, that explains it. I mean, the 2s always were a bit twitchy. That could never happen now with our behavior. And the great thing about Bishop is if you watch the film again, knowing the outcome, he plays it completely innocent. He plays it as this very helpful, compassionate guy. But he looks so sinister, and you know enough about these synthetics from the first film that you just never believe him. And the interesting thing is he totally is playing it on the square the entire way through the film. So this is a miniature, and uh, it actually starts off with a miniature and pans off onto, uh, onto the full size. And there's a little bit of a foreground set piece on the left that's a miniature also. It's another Skotak shot. Force perspective shot. All right, listen up. Morning, Marines. Now, I knew nothing about the U.S. Marine Corps at the time, although, curiously, while I was making this film, my youngest brother joined the Marines and was in for six years. I now know an awful lot more about the Marines, and they are much more disciplined than these people. And I just would like to apologize to any Marines who happen to be listening that we did not get that part of it right. These guys are definitely Vietnam-era regular army toward the end of their tour kind of motif. You know, the film is obviously informed by a lot of the imagery from Vietnam, the idea that, you know, they put painted flowers on their helmets and things like that, and it would, there, was a, there was a real discipline problem. Of course, that was also amongst a lot of, a lot of draftees at that time. So we're kind of mixing our metaphors a little bit here. Chew gum in every scene in the movie, Bill? Or? I tried to. I needed some kind of <laughs> needed physical some thing. little hook. If you watch my performance, I'm always doing something. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, Chewing gum. I have to indicate. <laughs> I can see all I could do in those days. <laughs> Everybody's archetypical in this thing. <laughs> I don't remember all the stuff hanging off of Mark, man. Look at all that crap hanging off of him. <laughs> Chicken bones. I look like a 15-year-old boy. That's what we liked about you, Jan. Was this the day, Michael, <laughs> you were passed out, out <laughs> by the lockers and Sigourney walked by and said, there's my leading man? If I mistaken with another day. Somewhere around in here. <laughs> wow. Had to audition. I had to audition. Did you? Oh, they made you audition for yeah, Fox, probably. Yeah. Well, the reason no, it wasn't for Fox, but they, that they had a a limit on how many Americans they could bring over, so they auditioned a lot of Englishmen for that role. The casting director Mary Selway and I had to meet every member of the North American Registry from British Actors Equity who was interested in being in this film before we could bring anyone other than Sigourney over from the United States. And I think we must have met and audition 3,000 people. I encourage the actors to customize their own costumes and, and armor and so on, personalize everything, 
to give the impression that they had been out a lot, that they were seasoned, that they had been away from command authority on their own a lot and were good enough at their, at their jobs that they were allowed these, these kind of latitudes. And obviously this is a, a continuation of the motif from the first film, which, you know, where they're wearing Hawaiian shirts and all kinds of strange stuff, all of which was a new idea in science fiction. People always wore uniforms on spaceships. That's how it worked, you know, from Star Trek on. Every science fiction film ever made, there was this sort of the general issue uniform, whatever it was. And, and Alien broke that mold, and it just seemed so right to people. They recognized the archetype instantly. Oh, these guys are truck drivers. They dress however they want. There's nobody around to tell them not to. And so the idea here was extrapolated to, you know, a military unit that's worked at the extreme fringes of human civilization. Now, the, the power loader was not designed by anybody in drawings, per se. I had done some preliminary drawings of it, but it evolved basically from trying to figure out how to make it work. We built full-sized mock-ups of the arms and legs in foam core. Uh, there's a guy inside that thing, big, strong English stuntman moving it and it's supported by cables. It's a completely a, an on-set gag. Now, I remember the English visual effects guys thinking we were crazy the, the way we wanted to do it. I said, no, it's the gag where, you know, the dad lets the daughter walk on his, uh, on his feet, you know, his three-year-old daughter. So standing behind Sigourney right now is this big 270-pound bodybuilding English stuntman. He's raising the arms himself, and he has in his hands a control that allows him to raise the forearm of the power loader. And then when they walk, they have to walk together. And the weight of the machine is, uh, is held by a crane, which is off camera, or some kind of overhead track rig. We had two versions of it. If we didn't need the machine to turn, we mounted it on a, uh, on a pylon, kind of a boom arm thing. And if we needed it to pivot, we hung it on, uh, on wires. 12, please. My kids remember all the dialogue, and one of the things they will always do is, Bay 12, please. <laughs> and Newt's line, they're dead, all right, can I go now? <laughs> How about get away from her, you, you bitch? bitch. Well, that's <laughs> that's the, the classic. most classic line in the movie. And obviously, this was another interesting idea that Jim had, which was to use a Steadicam harness mm -hmm. that's normally used for... Holding a camera in, in filmmaking to make a, a futuristic weapon out of. And everyone, of course, said it couldn't be done, which is, at least at the beginning of Jim's career, typical of the response oh, of to course. Jim's ideas. And then, of course, it worked beautifully. And these yeah. were aircraft vehicles. They were they, they were Airport the tow... Vehicle. Vehicles that were used to, to bring jumbo jets, uh, 747s, to tow them into um, the jetways at um, Heathrow Airport. And then we had the skin was fabricated by metal workers locally in Slough, England, which is near Pinewood Studios. The basic framework was a, uh, an airport tug. It was a vehicle that had four-wheel steering, and it weighed, I think it was... I don't know how many tons. So they had to strip the body off and strip a number of tons of weight. I think it was 72 tons yeah. when it started out. It wound up being 28 tons when it was done. 
the whole thing is full of uh, mechanisms. So there, as you see, when they open the door, there's nothing inside. Now we cut to a, an interior set piece. And of course, this interior is a cheat because it's larger on the inside than it is. <laughs> that magic know, space. This amount of set wouldn't have fit inside there, but you know, it's a movie cheat that works pretty well. Do you remember when the ceiling of this collapsed? We were shooting. I'm not sure if it was this scene or one of the, the scenes later on, but there was so much set dressing hanging from the roof of the APC set that at one point it collapsed. Look at Bill. This is my big speech. Yeah. My big speech. <laughs> God, I stayed up late trying to learn this thing. <laughs> you used to work hard, Bill. I worked sure. so hard. Uh, you got God, I killed myself <laughs> to make it work. I guess it has to do with Jim and my relationship with Jim. I thought it was your work ethic. Yeah. Well, that too. But with Jim, it's 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 peaked. Uh, you know, you want it right for him because he's a perfectionist, and you see how hard he's working. So these are all miniatures built by uh, Bob and Denny Skotag. Fairly large miniatures, as I recall. Now, when we shot this scene, Bill Paxton said, we're on an express elevator to hell going down, and the uh, grips shook the set, and the set collapsed on us and uh, split open my scalp. So <laughs> I'll always remember that line. Well, yeah, when the, the, the caught fire and the roof came in all in the same day. That was like all Yeah, the, and it, it hit like... Jim in the head. And <laughs> I saw blood start spurting out of his head, and it was right where Sigourney was supposed to be sitting, so it was a good thing it hit Jim and not her. We would have gotten an extra day off. You think they did that on purpose over there? No. 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 I'm just asking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, at that point, I think maybe they were. In the pike, five by five, my favorite line. All these shots during the descent... It's just me grabbing the, the back of the magazine of the camera and shaking the hell out of it. The poor camera operator had a bruise around his eye because sometimes I'd kind of whack the magazine too just to give it a sh sharp jolt. This is all my shake of the, of the camera. But the problem is the operator can't do it himself. It just gets into this kind of bouncy rhythm if the operator tries to do it. It has to be imposed from the outside and then they fight it, which is the natural reflex. Such a wonderful sound design in this movie. Much of which was generated in our living room really? in England. Yes. At the time, people really weren't using synthesizers in England to create sound effects for films. And we had a Fairlight synthesizer in our living room. And a lot of these sound effects were generated by Bob Garrett, Randy Frakes, and Jim in our living room near Pinewood, including the sound of the Alien Queen. Hmm. It really was a home movie. The dropship kind of evolved in its design as it went along. And finally, I came in on a Sunday during pre-production and just bashed a kit together out of a bunch of model parts and pieces of foam core and spray painted it gray and gave it to Ron Cobb to draw up. I think we, brought, we had brought Ron Cobb to England to help with some of the designs. So Ron packaged it, as he called it. He made it look, look better. This is a good scene, and it speaks kind of to one of the themes of the film, which is that these technologically advanced soldiers succumb to a technologically inferior but much more determined enemy that they don't know how to fight, which is really a kind of Vietnam metaphor, where basically U.S. forces got their butts kicked by barefoot guys running through the jungle. 
because they didn't understand how to fight that war. They didn't understand their enemy or the determination of that enemy. So Hudson's bragging scene here kind of plays into that. They're too cocky. They think they can handle anything because they've got the firepower. Bill is so wonderful in this. Absolutely. Such a memorable oh, character. Yeah. And, and when you think about all of this exposition that's being delivered in a really entertaining way, you know, all, all of this military jargon, because the characters are so distinctive, they don't just go right past you. Somebody wake up Hicks. So we're trying to go for a, you know, kind of a transformer effect here, where the where it deploys these, deploys these weapons pods. Where's the damn beacon? Oh, I see it. More, more hand handheld rear projection to kind of put you there. Because what I had noticed from a lot of science fiction films, even even the first Alien, was that you've got all this kind of handheld claustrophobic stuff, and then you cut to the window shots, and they're just these static kind of cutout mats, and it, it violates the, the, the flow. So we wanted to have continuity across those, across those cuts, so we, we decided to do all the views out the windows as rear projection handheld. Storm shutters is sealed. There's no visible activity. This is just, right, uh, just a regular handy cam, you know, regular eight handy cam, whatever, whatever the standard was at that time. This landing of the uh, dropship was quite a complicated thing uh, in terms of trying to hit a mark at, while shooting at high speed. The dropship, of course, was shot over-cranked, therefore the model had to be really moving fast, and those legs were fairly frail, the landing legs, so um, we would do take after take, and the landing legs would get crushed. Now, interestingly, this film is not a widescreen film. If I had it to do over again, I would have shot it widescreen so that it was more consistent with the first picture, but I didn't like anamorphic. I didn't like it for the visual effects problems it created. I'd had a bad experience working on Escape from New York trying to do anamorphic visual effects. So we decided to shoot 185. I almost shot the film in Super 35, but I got talked out of it by somebody that didn't understand that format very well. And then I wound up shooting all my subsequent films in Super 35. I still don't really care for anamorphic. You have problems with lenses when you're shooting miniatures. You have problems with depth of field. There are problems in composite and so on. You know, when we did Escape from New York, we didn't have much money, so we were and we were inexperienced in in um, in anamorphic. So I didn't really I didn't really have an alternative that I considered viable at the time. But now when I see the two pictures back to back screened, doesn't make too much difference on video. But when I see them screened, I actually like the look of of Alien better because I just like the uh, I like the aspect ratio, and I've come to know and and love the the um, uh, 2.35 to 1 aspect ratio. The interesting thing is that, that uh, you know, the first film was anamorphic, so it used more of the negative area. This is a 185 picture, and in this exact year, I think Kodak was in transition. They were changing their emulsions. This was a higher speed negative than had been used previously. They hadn't worked out their T-grain emulsion, so it turned out to be grainier than I would have wanted, but this was actually the standard. This is just what that stock was that year. And because we weren't using the full negative like you would with an anamorphic film, you know, we weren't getting quite as much image quality. If I had shot Super 35, it would have looked terrible. 
I think, because of the graininess factor. So I was just as well off that I hadn't. By the time uh, I got ready to do the Abyss a couple of years later, they had improved the emulsions enough that Super 35 looked pretty great. I was surprised recently when I screened this film at how grainy it was. Of course, nobody noticed the grain at the time, because most films, frankly, looked like that. Bill, don't, isn't there a lot of dialogue that you have on this that you know people have used in different video games and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Game Over Man and things like yeah, that. Are yeah, yeah. Some pretty you get anything for that, or is that just... I don't think so. I'm not even getting anything to sit here and do this commentary. They just <laughs> want to expect us to do it for no money. Oh. <laughs> you got a beer out of it, though. No, it's great. To, you know what? I, it's just fun to come down. Yeah, I got a beer out of it, so that's cool. I remember this was an amazing set. This yeah. concourse A. Yeah. And it was long. And I remember later on when all hell's breaking loose and Jim had that little video camera and he had a, everybody on the crew having coffee while we would run at him mm -hmm. and do different things. It was yeah. so amazing to see this gigantic set, one of the biggest sets I'd ever seen. And there's Jim by himself with this little camera and all the crew were out. And when did the bust out almost happen? Remember he was going to pull the plug and move the movie somewhere else? When did that happen? What was that? Well, I remember there were some problems. Big, there was, was some union battle. problems. Yeah. And the crew weren't really used to working the same <laughs> way. Jim. They weren't used to, used to working. No, <laughs> they, they weren't used to they working. Were they weren't used to working. Really no, that's not fair. They were great craftsmen, but they really had kind of an indentured way of doing mm -hmm. everything. And you know, Jim needs something. He just grabs it. If he needs a light moved, he'll just grab the light himself. I saw him. I remember we punched a hole through somewhere because he needed to run a line or something. He didn't want to wait around. He just said, "Give me a hammer." Yeah. That's what. But this was an ambitious schedule. I, I remember. I remember Jim was running from stage to stage. I think we had about three big sound stages with, you know, giant sets, and then there were like two sound stages with miniatures. And then there was a stage with all those tunnels. Yeah. I remember right. they were putting you in that the damn pipe. tunnel. That pipe. We had gone away to the Acton Power Station to shoot the uh, atmosphere processor scenes and come back to the set after it had been wrecked. So we're into Adrian Biddle's photography here. He was the second DP. And um, I had encouraged Adrian so that we could make good time shooting to try to use as much built-in lighting as possible. So a lot of these scenes are lit largely by the fluorescents that are built into the set with just a little additional lighting. And Adrian was great about that. He really liked to work on a more raw and edgy look and work with the practical lights a lot more. This is another thing that I think is important. With a lot of science fiction movies that are all interior, you really often lose track geographically of where you are and it becomes incredibly confusing and it's hard to build the tension and the suspense Jim was aware of this from the script stage and made sure that we established through the helmet cams, through the motion trackers, where they are, and then ultimately later on, where the aliens are. Even in the long version, you're still left to fill in your mind what happened here. We don't see the battle, we just imagine the battle and the ferocity of the battle. Now, we'll see plenty of battles later, and this is sort of promising you that. We have a shot coming up here uh, where there are acid holes, acid uh, holes <laughs> uh, eaten into uh, the floor by these uh, so far unseen aliens. And of course these sets were not double deck sets, 
So Jim wanted a uh, scene where one of the characters looks down through one of these holes, and um, I think Bill here uh, spits down into it to give some perspective. So this down view we actually shot on our miniature stage. We uh, layered the set and uh, photographed that. Oh, this is where you spit. Remember that? And they did you it said miniature. It was, yeah, miniature spit. They even did a miniature yeah, spit. That's the miniature is that what spit, that is? right yeah. there. Yeah. I was sort of finding to get that that spitting effect was actually not spit. Uh, it didn't turn out that it worked very well. So I think it was it was a combination of milk. It was milk and water and an eyedropper that eyedropper. was put right underneath the lens. The complaint from the studio was that the film went on too long without anything really happening. You know, I kind of was trying to just, you know, wind the suspense tighter and tighter before you actually saw anything, before we paid it off. The consensus from the, from the studio at the time was we were just kind of jerking around, not giving the audience anything. And I think that unfortunately, too many movies that I see now, they just kind of, it's all up front. You just start seeing stuff right away and there's no sense of a build. So this is the um, miniature APC that uh, was built by Bob and Denny Skotek. Pretty good size. I remember it being five or six feet long. Most people don't twig that as a, a miniature, and that's the real APC pulling in, so they match the lighting pretty nicely. I think Jim did some of his, uh, his live action stuff at Undercranked. He ran the camera slightly slower on the APC so that it felt slightly more as if it were a miniature, but you knew it was real because you could see people at, some, at one point interacting with it, so that if any of the miniature stuff didn't quite work for whatever reason, it took the curse off that because it felt the two were blended together. So obviously this is full size. Well, I think he wound up uh, doing some of that slight undercranking because the APC, uh, the full size one, didn't move as fast as he as he wanted it. I think it could only go eight eight or ten miles an hour. What was one of the difficult things about making this movie is that Terminator hadn't come out yet in England, and the perception of Jim Cameron, who looked about twenty when he directed this movie, and myself as the directing, producing team was met with a great deal of resistance because back then, the system in England was that you had to put in years and years and years to rise up to the level of being a producer or a director. And we were simply not treated with a great deal of respect, and um, it was very hard every day of the shoot because we were being second-guessed, and Every decision we made was questioned, and a tremendous thing, of course, having Stan on the film, was that... I was old? No. <laughs> was that you were a cheerleader for both of us. By demonstrating the respect and the enthusiasm that you did, I think other people gradually relented. I knew it was the best thing for me and the best thing for everybody on that set. There's certain people that you know no matter how they do it, what they're doing is special. This particular directing, producing team had been a win for me in my career and actually stayed that way. I never thought our facehuggers looked as good as the one in the first film, to be perfectly honest. Of course, we had to make lots of them, and they had to run around and do all kinds of things. But textually, I think the one in the first film looked great. It really held up. Bits of oysters and stuff inside it looked great. But I did want to see the disgusting thing that it had down the inside of Kane's throat in the first film. I wanted to, wanted to see that. You never see it in the movie, in, uh, in Alien. So I figured we'd gross everybody out. All of Giger's designs have a real kind of sexual undercurrent to them. And that's what I think horrified people about the Alien as much as anything, is it worked on a kind of uh, Freudian subconscious level. 
And, you know, Ridley and Giger knew that, and they, they went for that. This film is, was never intended to be as much of a horror film as the first one. It was working on a kind of different thematic level, but I still wanted to be true to some of those ideas, some of those design concepts. It would be natural to assume that I'd want to work with Giger, but for some reason it just didn't occur to me at the time. Maybe it was because we really only needed to design one new creature, and I had already designed her by the time I wrote the script, being the alien queen. I guess maybe it was just my own ego as an artist. I just felt like, you know, he'd, he'd made his stamp, and I knew from what I'd read that he had to do everything his way, and I had a very specific idea for the alien queen to extrapolate beyond what had been done before, and I, I kind of got the impression from what I read that, that I wasn't going to get quite the dynamic character that I, that I wanted. And, you know, in a funny way, part of what attracted me to doing this film was the opportunity to really do cool design stuff. So I, maybe I was just a little bit too in love with the idea of designing the creatures and designing the weapons and doing all that stuff. These shoulder-mounted lights, by the way, were not practical in today's technology because those bulbs and the batteries, it go through batteries quite quickly, and uh, they're fairly delicate, but they did serve the purpose. And we assume in the, this point in the future they'd work more efficiently. But I remember when we were crewing up, the department heads would come in and meet with me before they met with Jim. And it was kind of a two-tier process. And a number of them came in as heads of department and said, uh, who's really producing this movie? And I'd say, I am. And they'd say, no, 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 no. You're the director's wife. You get the credit, but who's really producing the movie? And it was really difficult for me to, to maintain a sense of calm. Never worked with a better producer in my life. And great directing, producing team. Because they're one of the few people that actually stands up and talks to Jim. There's an intimidation factor there. <laughs> I feel fortunate that I had that relationship with him and you for <clears throat> the films we've done together, but uh, never worked with a, a more diligent and intelligent and unfortunately tough producer <laughs> as you. Thank you. <laughs> Beat me down financially, I'll tell you. Well, this is, this is what we need. Well, this is what you got, dude. Now, Carrie Henn, who plays Newt, was an astonishing find. Mary Selway, our casting director, and her associate, Sarah Jackson, searched throughout England, and in fact, I think the entire British Isles, trying to find a young girl who could, who could portray this character. And we had every young girl who wanted to be an actress or whose parents wanted them to act to come in and audition, and almost all of them had done commercials. And every time they delivered a line, they would smile. And of course, this is a little girl suffering from traumatic stress. She's watched her family wiped out, every other person on the mining colony wiped out. And I think we probably had 500 little girls on tape. And Carrie was found at a U.S. Air Force base in, in England. Her father was a 
a U.S. serviceman serving there, and um, she came in and auditioned, never having acted even in a school play, and was dead on from the very first reading. She's such a good little actress. Do you know if she's done anything since this? She has a normal life. She did not pursue acting as her career. But one of the things that we were very concerned about was whether or not this film would traumatize her because it's very intense and unlike now where we could composite creatures in seamlessly or, or create one digitally, she really was terrorized by the alien warriors in the film and, and um, she understood that it was make-believe. And her parents were tremendously supportive and, uh, you know, she really had her feet on the ground and, even, and this really is acting. Carrie got into the rhythm of it. I mean, she'd never been in a movie before, but she started to really enjoy it and really liked working with everybody. It was a big adventure for her. And she started to become an actor in the sense that she understood her character. There was one day when she was sick, she had a fever, and they didn't want her to work. And she was absolutely devastated that we were going to have to do the scene with a double. And she pitched such a fit that she came back, and so I wound up sort of doing one little shot with her just so she'd feel better, so she could go home. I'd have to work with her a lot. I'd give her eye lines. Sometimes I'd make a little mark on the wall for it. Like, I remember when we were doing this scene, she was supposed to stare off into space. I had to kind of unwire her from the normal response of somebody sitting there and talking to you. They're going to look at you. So I gave her a mark on the wall to look at, kind of told her to kind of blank her mind, and uh, that seemed to work pretty well. This is probably one of my favorite parts of the movie. I guess because Sigourney and I, we had bonded so much and this is kind of where in the movie our bonding does start. And she was determined to get that dirt off of me. They didn't really want her to wipe my face clean. And um, she was really determined to get it off of me. She didn't think it was very fair that I was that dirty and nobody else was. But um, so it was kind of nice that I didn't have to worry about so much dirt later on. Um, but she was really nice. She was always helping me. Sigourney and, and Carrie got to be pals, and they'd, they'd hang out, and I think Sigourney felt very protective of her. Sigourney didn't have any children at that time, and, uh, you know, I, there, was, there was a real bond that was very maternal, I think, there. And uh, I think Carrie thought Sigourney was pretty cool. Carrie's pretty good in this scene. She really, she really got it, you know. Sigourney was so nice. God, yeah, I, was, I, I thought, gee, I must be screwing up because she was so nice to me all the time. But I realized she was just really genuinely a, a nice person. Yeah, she you know? is. She really is. Gentle. She, she was the leader of the cast, absolutely. Yeah, yeah she took a lot of punishment in this thing. And, and, uh, Her back was hurting her, too. They had to, you know, they had to make a, a dummy of the, of the, of Newt. Because her back was killing her, you know, from all the work. All the crawling around and crouching. Well, it's interesting to note that, you know, she was nominated for an Academy Award in a genre that the Academy never recognizes, you know, science fiction, right. fantasy, and horror. Does now, but didn't then. No, right? yeah, yeah, it does now, but certainly didn't then. Dead. All right, can I go now? 
I just love the idea of this little girl who feels so much more secure by herself, away from the adults, with these aliens around than when she's with them. And, uh, you know, the foreboding potential of that, you know, she looks around at a squad of Marines and says, okay, you guys are all going to die, and when you do, I'm going to be on my own again, but I'm more at risk when I'm with you than doing my thing that I know works. You know, I, I, I really thought that was a cool idea. Oh, here it is. This is where I was going to use the two pupils in each eye. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And I did it, and when the guy interrupted me, I turned and looked at him, and Jim said, it's so scary, I can't use oh, it. Oh, that's right. I remember here. Lance loves to create a character through some kind of physical totem of some kind, and different characters that he's done for me. It could be a pocket knife. I'm talking about kind of like a rabbit's foot kind of thing, and he always looks for some way into the character. And uh, so he, on, on his own made up these scleral lenses that had double pupils. And they were really creepy. It was, it was a really cool idea, but I felt it was too overt, and I felt it was too on the nose. I mean, we wanted to go for a kind of an ominous thing there, but I think Lance underestimated his own on-screen power, and I knew that he could, do, he could do a great ominous kind of moment. Here's a panning shot of the uh, armed personnel carrier driving by, and this was done with uh, the 12th scale armed personnel carrier. We have the camera flat on the ground, and at the beginning of the shot, right behind the uh, APC is the uh, 50th scale colony complex. And because we're flat on the ground, we, the audience doesn't see the uh, scale differential that's going on there. Literally, the bumper of a 12th scale was next to a 50th scale. The shots of the APC driving into the uh, atmosphere processor were also done as uh, miniature. There was no full-size uh, entryway that was built for the film, and that's why we built one as a miniature. The sequence of uh, inside the atmosphere processor is a, a location of a uh, decommissioned power station at Acton inside London or just outside of London. And uh, rather than building a set from scratch, they used the, uh, what really was there and then added the uh, alien alien-esque bits to it. Look at that shit. Now, this was my first day. That was That's your, your first, first day? day? Oh, yeah. At Acton? This you guys is were our first, first day. day ever on yeah, a You film. won't see me there. First ever, ever on any, any film. Wow. I had no idea what Back to One meant or anything. What does back to one mean? <laughs> 30 years later, I'm still trying to figure that, that out. That's a real gun you're using. That's a German Sten gun. Yeah, I remember everything was cool till we started firing the weapons, and then this fine kind of snow started raining down on everybody. But yeah. I think they checked it out. It was just asbestos, right? Just, yeah. It's yeah. full of asbestos. Nothing wrong with that. We had to practice uh, <laughs> shooting flamethrowers. Uh, we did, you know, the close quarter battle stuff mm -hmm. and... Um, you know, approaching a building or going down a hallway, how, you know, you kind of leapfrog along. We did, did some of that. Uh, Al Matthews, who plays Sergeant Apone, had some kind of military background. I he think he had served in the Vietnam War, and, and after the war he had come to England, where he'd become a, a radio disc jockey, I think. But um, he was either really good at bullshitting us, but <laughs> he seemed like he knew some, what he was doing. <laughs> He said things and such. His orders were so authoritarian that we followed him. Then another technique that's not used anymore to create the size of that set. Well, a hanging miniature, that was the previous shot where it really saw the expanse of the inside of this alien virtual universe, which they've now 
as you're seeing here, set-wise, the kind of cocoon aspect of what these aliens do. A hanging miniature, which is a technique, is a small set piece that hangs in front of the camera and then the full-size set is behind it and the actors are behind it. And the illusion is the set is huge and expanding up and over everyone when, in fact, the foreground of the set piece is a miniature, the background of the set piece and, the, and all the actors is, uh, is normal size. It's basically a forced perspective shot. This is my first on-camera line coming up. Yeah, this was the first day, wasn't it? I remember we started really? at Acton. Yeah, yeah this was we the started first day. Here. This was my first day. Oh, I thought you guys had already been shooting a little bit by the time I got there. We had. But they had to reshoot. We had to go back. You said anything at that <laughs> point. We went back and picked up here. Oh, I see. Mm -hmm. I see. Right. right oh, that's right. Oh, yeah. yeah. And also, uh, Dick Bush, the cinematographer, uh, was replaced by uh, Adrian Biddle. Uh, somewhere in this in this area too at the same time mm -hmm. a few changes were made in the lineup about two weeks in if they fire their weapons in there won't they rupture the cooling oh, system oh oh yeah she's absolutely right so i heard a story that some of the studio execs were looking at screening some of the footage back in the states and they were a little perturbed and they were asking well we're 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 not seeing any effects where's the effect shot and uh I believe Gail Hurd said, well, you you're looked at, you saw one of the effect shots. She was referring to that perspective shot. They were completely fooled by it, and they thought nothing had been shot. And also, they thought they were spending huge amounts of money on these sets, which they didn't realize was a visual effect. Right, they said, yeah, you spend so much on that set, and there's no miniature. And she said, no, that is the miniature. That was a smart uh, move on Cameron's part, to do it that way very, very quickly in the film. So the studio wasn't worried quite as much at what was going on 5,000 miles away in London. It does make uh, it, it a bit uh, tricky to shoot, though, because if anything goes wrong, you're, you're stuck with it, or you have to fix it later. But uh, with a reshoot, you can't really fix it later, I should say. So uh, that worked out quite well. But it's uh, you know, with actors and everything, there, there's a lot on the line. Something we've lost sight of over the years is that with this kind of era of filmmaking, not only for live action, but for miniatures, there wasn't much ability to go back and fix something. Now you can digitally, you can change an actor's face, you can get rid of wires, you can do all kinds of tricks, uh, split screen, take elements and, and change shots. But at that time, you had to plan these things and make it work within a fairly narrow tolerance. Otherwise, you, you just... Uh, that was it. That's what wound up in the film. It reminds me of like of a stage play or something. Uh, you're doing it live in a sense because what was on film, although it was on film, was it. There was no going back. I mean, you could only do it so many times. There's so much of a, uh, a limited budget to work with, and it had to work on film no matter what. My crew actually helped dress this whole set because it had to be cocooned bodies. And so we created all these these bodies and all the dressing over it to, uh, to help out the art department. I remember coming in and being terrified that it, the set wouldn't be ready in time yeah. because it was very complicated. Everybody had to pitch in and make uh, make the movie work because it was a lot to do in a in a short period of time. As no one else would have really been able to do it, even this stuff.
I even doubled for Vasquez. Did you? Mm-hmm. Do you remember the I'll shot? Sh- of course I remember the you shot. I'll show you later on. And our homage to what everyone needs to see in this movie is about to come up. This was a very tough scene to create, which was the chestburster scene. Again, a duplication of head and entire body. And then we built an entire puppet of her for the, uh, for the chestburster and the burn sequence. That was one of those things. James Harder came up with this music sting when she opens her eyes, and I always thought it was totally over the top. Help! What? And then I saw the whole film kind of put together with the uh, with the score, and, and uh, thought, no, that's what we need. I thought, how can you sting somebody opening their eyes? But it works. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. She shouldn't have mm. had the bangers mm. with mash. Oh. Oh, my God. Kill it. Fry it. Come on. What are you doing, Hicks? Yeah, that's a nasty shot. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nasty shot of that thing. <laughs> it's a good shot of it there, kind of getting fried. Oh, gosh. Here they come. Ooh. So I do think our chestburster looks a little cooler than the one in the first film, more articulated. Stan Winston's guys really did a good job on it. John Rosengrant and Shane Mahan. Ooh, look who's back. Yeah. Another, you know, one of our problems to solve for this movie was creating the the whole army of uh, warrior aliens and being legitimate to the original movie but having to improve on it for movement and for the look of being able to really study them. The original alien, they were rubber suits and uh, very difficult for the actor to move around. And he, had, he was very tall and very skinny, as I recall. Yeah, and so what we had to do, because Jim wanted to do a lot of very interesting moves with the uh, warrior aliens, was we came up with a technique to create the suit that really involved a lot of spandex and pieces on on it. And then we actually designed these set pieces for the aliens to fit into the walls, like the one that is behind him there, so that the camouflage would work. An enormous amount of wire work for all of these stunt alien performers, which required that the alien costumes be extremely uh, user-friendly. So this scene was completely inspired by the scene in the first film where Dallas is in the air vents and they see the signal moving and they kind of get a little freaked and Veronica Cartwright says, get out of there, and he makes the wrong move and gets gets killed. That's probably one of the most suspenseful scenes in the first film and so I just took that idea that they're getting these readings that are getting them spooked and then they make some bad moves. Form follows function and this is a perfect example of it. You start with what it is you want to achieve and once you have that you can design it so the actions and um, and the performance is consistent with what you want in the finished film. And believe it or not, very few people work that way. They just want to come up with something that's cool. And then, of course, you spend hours and hours and hours trying to get it to work for the ultimate film. Of course, I happen to agree with Gail. My background is as an actor. And really, I come from a place where the creatures and the characters 
you know, are wonderful to look at, but ultimately it's always about their performance, and we have to figure out how they're going to be able to act and create a good performance, or it's a waste. And so that's really always at the, uh, at the top of the priority list of when we're creating any kind of a creature, is what is it going to do and how is it going to do it. And what he really does is create a character, and that's why I think his work is so unique. And, and when you look at a film, you can always tell who's done the, the creatures if they actually have a character, because he creates a character that can act and perform. I mean, the whole film, in a sense, builds to this moment where the power transfers from the authoritarian structure to the individual who takes action. Ripley's not supposed to do anything. She's just there as an observer. We're coming out to a sequence here where uh, Sigourney takes over control of the, um, you know, the APC, and um, this sequence is comprised of live-action shots, but as it comes down this hallway and is banging into pipes and into the walls and sparking, that's all done in miniature. In some cases, the, um, the cameraman, was because uh, the set was mounted at an angle, was on a um, cart, a wheeled cart, and um, was rolling backwards as the uh, radio-controlled APC was coming at camera. There was a point when he was just put into a free fall, uh, rolling backwards downhill, photographing what was in, in front of him as he went backwards. Here we go. This is the shot. In where, acting. Well, there was yeah, this, a, a this shot. This is also miniatures. Yeah, there, there's a shot with a full size when mm -hmm. uh, the brakes didn't work. I don't know if you remember that. And yeah. it took uh, out the camera, and luckily it was a remote-operated camera. Yeah, it was, it it was a off. shot where we were actually crushing a, uh, a alien warrior when it broke through. Yep. This is the shot, actually, where it took the camera out. Then there's another shot where it takes down an alien. Again, these shots of the aliens kind of hanging from the ceiling there, coming around the corners, they're just shot upside down. It's just like guys standing there in an alien suit. And we, you know, set up some alien puppets, you know, made out of foam and filled them with gack and guts and yellow goo and blew the hell out of them with primer cord, as I recall. Made a big mess. Minuscule things we had to do on this, but they were important, like creating burn appliance makeups for when the acid would hit. Here's a, a case right here. The alien comes up, splats, and the blood is right here. And quick cut, it's a quick but cut, but prosthetics used. Sean Richardson was the physical effects supervisor on the film, and I remember I was at his shop, which was on the on the lot, and they were testing one of these flamethrowers, and they were it was a real flamethrower that they had built, and uh, this thing would go about 20 or 30 feet. So every time you see uh, flames coming out, it's, it's sort of the real thing. It was a little scary. When we did the fire inside the APC, there was something that they had used to age the set, some kind of wax-based substance that the uh, art department had dabbed on to make the set look more kind of like a, you know, used military vehicle and the heat caused it to vaporize, and the actors kind of got this strong sense that they couldn't breathe and could cause their throats to kind of close up. Bill tells a story, you know, Jeanette is going <coughs> like this, and Bill remembers thinking, wow, she's really coming up with some great stuff here, <laughs> and she really couldn't breathe. 
So uh, I don't remember what we did about that. Probably just kept shooting. I think we just kept the fire out of the inside, kept going. One thing, too, is that because the full-size APC was incapable of sort of uh, spinning its wheels, all those shots of uh, Ripley, uh, when she hits the gas, you see the wheel spin and smoke were all the miniature because the full-size vehicle, again, weighed some 20 or 30 tons. <laughs> well, we had, yeah, we had put an A and B yeah. smoke on the uh, A solution on the wheel and B on the ground. And as the tire turned, it would, in, it would mix that A and B together and give the smoke and we had somebody holding back the front of the uh, APC for a moment so that the tire would spin, then we let it go. That AB smoke is really toxic, right? We don't, we don't like to breathe that stuff at all. <laughs> <laughs> we had different kinds of smoke. We had some, we had some really nasty smoke that you, it's, I think it's illegal to use now. Titanium tetroxide stuff that created that really nice coherent smoke, but that was only used for some of the alien acid stuff. And then you just used a regular kind of mole, mole fogger. We used AB smoke for a couple things. Some of the acid hits were done with AB smoke, which is pretty caustic. Maybe a concussion. You know, it's uh, some of the, like in Jim's movies, I think of it the same way in, in, with the Terminator. I mean, it's just like, there's not like one shot in it that you look at and you go, that's bad, or that doesn't work, or it just it just seems like every single shot. He knows to, how to, you know, to every put single all the shots shot, to make though, up I mean, the diet yeah. that really make the whole sequence just snap, crackle, and pop, that's for sure. You know, there's not many directors who are fluent in the language of film, and Jim just, he just comes to it intuitively. What are you crying about here, Bill? Something. <laughs> mm, somebody was always telling you to relax. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was one of those characters that I just felt like, God, the audience is going to be so ready for this guy to die so quickly. And you had a good death scene in it, though. This was kind of weird at first because I wasn't quite used to all the cussing around me. And uh, Hudson tended to say a lot. And every time when we'd cut, he'd look at me and, I'm, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And, you know, I didn't care, but I kind of felt bad for him. And at this time, you never really realize what a bad guy Paul Reiser was. Paul was so good in this. You so wanted him to get killed. <laughs> <laughs> I love that novellan. I love it because Hudson, the, the character that Bill Paxton plays, is the voice of the yeah. audience in this. You know, he's saying the things that you, the audience would say and asking the questions the audience would ask. Maybe I've been keeping up on current events, but we just got our asses kicked, pal. Well, I, you could tell when we started screening the film that, uh, well, we didn't really screen the film in the way that they screen films now. We never did a test screening. But, uh, you know, at the premiere, let's say, which is the first time I saw the film with an audience, <laughs> which is unthinkable these days. No, we could we could tell the audience really liked Hudson, really connected. I like this scene because again, it's the transfer of power. Sigourney has sort of made Burke as a guy she can't trust, and I mean Ripley has has figured out you know Burke's agenda, and uh, she's created enough of a bond with uh, with Hicks that she knows she can get him to do what needs to be done, take command even though he's a corporal. Having been in the army myself in the. 70s, Jim really nailed uh, sort of the army life for the military. He's, and he was never in the military. No, Jim wasn't. Yeah, yeah. No, and he... uh, that's how guys acted. 
Rear projection is, is an older technique that's been used in a lot of films, and uh, it, it's basically having a projector a uh, distance away from a translucent screen that's behind the actor, and uh, the image of the scene that's supposed to, they're supposed to be standing in front of is projected uh, previously shot footage, and uh, that uh, method tends to look like what you're doing unless the technique that, as Jim shoots it, where the camera's moving a lot and there's a lot of things to obscure the straight photography of it helps quite a bit and to take the edge off. Front projection uses a material that is made by uh, 3M and some other companies that is uh, related to the uh, material used for traffic signs. Your headlights hit the signs that kind of glow back. It's very similar to that except it's even more extreme version of it and uh, an image is projected from the camera's point of view rather than from behind the set. Correct, and that's how why it's called front projection. It's projected from near the camera and it hits the screen and it comes right back at the camera and the shadow that you would expect to see is hidden by the object or person in the foreground. It's self-hiding in theory. Front projection is um, produces a more photographable image. It retains the illumination level better than rear projection. Yeah, we did a number of these dropship crashes, uh, four or five of these things, to finally get the plate right. Jim was very specific about how the dropship was going to hit, sort Roll. of this whole ballet of it rolling and so forth. And Yeah, we had to design that in so that the pods hit a certain way, the skids broke at a certain way, the landing leg sort of shears off by hitting a rock, which sends it skewing slightly sideways, which sort of dovetails into this tumbling action has become a uh, sort of a famous shot in the film. But you know, every film is a snapshot or cross-section of the technical capabilities of its time. Even though in the time you probably feel like you're pushing the envelope and moving things forward a little bit, you look back on it now, you know, 18 years later, and it just seems kind of quaint. Unfortunately, this is one of the scenes that I don't particularly like too much, because there's a line in here, and it seems to be the only line of mine that everybody I ever run into remembers and anyone who ever wants to irritate me any of my friends they just say this they they say it with everything if they you know the, the line was they mostly come out at night mostly and my friends will be like oh we mostly go to the movies at night mostly or they just come up with whatever they can possibly come up with and it's probably the one scene I, I don't really particularly like in the whole thing There's a shot with um, Ripley and Newt looking back at the uh, burning, damaged atmosphere processor was done with doubles months after live action had wrapped. You know, I never realized I had such a small part in this. <laughs> <laughs> you come in big at the end, though, Lance. <laughs> So this is a typical group scene. My challenge as a director on this film was that almost every scene was a group scene. Almost every scene had five, seven, eight characters all at the same time. So there were a lot of camera axes. You know, I had done Terminator before that. Every scene, every scene had two or three people in it. It was no problem. But uh, almost every scene in this film had multiple characters, kind of a Gatling gun of dialogue going around the room. And uh, I found that challenging at first until I got it all straight in my head. Because, you know, I wasn't really that experienced as a film director at this point. This was my second film. I wanted to be cool like Michael. I was, I was cool in that shot. That was the last time I was cool. 
I wanted to be the cool guy. I didn't want to be the guy belly This movie made you a I star, to be, man. I wanted to be Michael Bean in this movie. So did I. I wanted to be Sigourney. Why don't you put her in charge? Yeah, there it is. That's a classic, man. Oh, yeah. Figuring out the actor dynamics is tricky, too, because actors are all going to peak at different moments. And uh, it's impossible not to go through a kind of a power hierarchy. The group always knows who's getting the close-up. There's this irresistible sense that I should do a close-up on everybody so nobody feels left out. And so there's a whole political side to doing a group scene like that, because everybody's there, they all see what's going on. And eventually I just dispensed with that and said, OK, it's time for Sigourney's close-up. Fortunately, Sigourney always liked to go last which was good. She liked to build, and she liked to have the time before the camera got in tight on her to really pick how she was going to do her moments. <laughs> oh, here, here he goes. I'll do it. I'll go. Yeah, send the doll. That's what Bill's, Bill's whole thing was. <laughs> send the doll. Send the doll out there, man. <laughs> I was so hurt. Yeah, man. Hudson should go. I mean, yeah, Bishop. Bishop. Yeah, Bishop should, should go. go. Send the doll. There's a pipe. Send him down the pipe. <laughs> My favorite thing was using him at... Bill wanted to use me as a training toy. You know, they just, just chase Bishop <laughs> around and shoot at him. Yeah. The processing station. Well, you were in so much into your character on that show that we just, like, asked you for a cup of coffee. You oh, go I'll running for go get lunch. You just go clean up our trailers for us. I was absolutely a selfless. <laughs> Everybody was that used was to be so in. man. And then feel that door. Yeah, that'll work, but we gotta figure on them getting into the complex. That's right. So, we repair the barricades at these two intersections. Right. And weld plates. I never liked that shot areas. because she keeps pointing at the same spot. I don't remember how that how that happened. I think that was a second unit shot, that was uh, that was done while I was in another room shooting something else, and and uh, I was never happy with it. Because the whole idea was she's supposed to be showing the whole the whole area. Of course, the, the floor diagram didn't resemble the set either. You've got to remember, this is a low-budget film, so <laughs> got to cut it a little slack. I like these really advanced laptops they have <laughs> in the distance. We thought we were being so advanced here. Okay, so these are, this is an added scene with these sentry guns. This is a scene that got the axe as a result of the uh, the studio's idea that we were wasting too much time, not really getting getting on with the story. I actually think this stuff really ups the ante and uh, increases the the fear a lot. Because the Terminator hadn't come out yet in England, there was the perception that. Jim was somehow not up to the creative responsibility of directing a sequel to Ridley Scott's masterpiece. And there was a lot of resentment and really no understanding or very little understanding of what he was trying to accomplish. We had people who were, I think, completely on our side. Uh, John Richardson in practical special effects, Brian Johnson in visual effects, there were people who, who understood Jim's vision, but there were quite a few people who simply looked at him as the young, know-nothing, upstart yank 
which really drove Jim crazy considering he's a Canadian. Unfortunately, it was the person who was supposed to be his right hand, which is his AD. The, the, the leader of the rebellion was the first assistant director. And not only behind Jim's back, but to his face, would call him governor and then roll his eyes as if Jim hadn't earned the title yet. And one day, we were shooting very long hours, and people were pretty frazzled. And by our standards in, in America at the time, a 12-hour day is not a long day. That's an average day. But 12 hours at the time in England was a very long day, and there were times when we'd go into a 14-hour day. And at a certain point, our assistant director basically said, we're not doing this anymore. And um, so we fired him. And he felt that he really should be directing the movie. He was a frustrated director. He had directed Second Unit before. I think he'd might, he'd even, even had directed a, a small film. I don't but he remember. really felt that he was better qualified than Jim was to direct the film. And... Um, he basically went to all of the departments and some cast members, and everyone walked off the set. And it was the most difficult moment, perhaps, of my entire career, even to this day, trying to rally everyone back. And in, in fact, we were able to turn it around so that the outcome of that mutiny was that we were united after we resolved the issues for the first time on the film and going on to the rest of the production schedule, we actually were a unified group. So it, it was an example of something good coming out of a really difficult situation. And I remember through that period of time talking to various people and going, this is, you know, this is a, a wonderful movie and everybody's working as hard as they possibly can and hoping that no one would lose the energy. And fortunately, because of uh, how you handled it, it all came together, because it was scary. It was very scary. So we were at that point, we go, oh, what are we going to do, hire a new crew? Not that the thought didn't cross my mind, but we realized that England at the time was very busy, and we didn't have the option. There weren't other key crew members even available. So when you have no options, you make it work, and we did. I said, this is probably my favorite movie of my career. It's also the only movie of my career where I've ever experienced anything like what we uh, what we went through there. I will also say, though, on the positive side of the English crew, I mean, I brought a handful of guys from the States. We built, you know, started all our designs and our builds in the States and then built a uh, a workshop in Pinewood and hired all but a half a dozen of the key coordinators from my studio were hired from England and everybody worked very hard and did a great job. They were all really wonderful artists and very committed and everybody wanted to do a good job. They just had slightly different work habits than we did. I was kind of shocked when suddenly at a particular time mid-morning everyone tea trolley would be would gone come in. and I'd go, where's, where's everybody? And they'd go, they're at tea. I said, hello. <laughs> just gone. The, the other thing is that Pinewood Studios at the time had an entire crew on staff that were assigned to a movie. Right now it's four-wall, which basically means you hire the crew that you want. It's freelance. But you ended up with the crew that was assigned to the stages you were working on. And there was no selection process involved. And it, it made it very difficult because some people really were punching a clock, and they didn't want overtime, and they didn't want to do anything other than 
go to work for, um, you know, an eight or nine hour day. Well, the interesting thing about shooting this film in England was that it wasn't just a culture clash for me. It was also a transition from a non-union guerrilla filmmaking mentality, which started with me at Roger Corman's, you know, New World Pictures and um, continued through The Terminator, which was made very fast with a non-union crew shooting very down and dirty, to a union picture. And also the particular way that they work in England was very, very different. And so there was an adaptation to that. And frankly, I thought that there were a lot of people on the crew that were, to use a charitable term, comfortable. And that was just completely foreign to me because I'd been used to working with kind of young, eager, hardcore, dedicated film folks. And they were all, they all had something to prove. But a lot of the people, uh, especially at the Pinewood Studios at that time, they were kind of lifers. They had permanent employment. It didn't matter what movie they were working on, they had a gig. And they kind of got pushed on us. If you did Pinewood, you had to use X number of their people. It was just a whole different mentality. You know, so I pushed against that as hard as I could. And uh, if I hadn't, we wouldn't have gotten the film done uh, on budget and on schedule, which we did. I know that probably a lot of people there at Pinewood at the time that, that didn't care for us with our guerrilla filmmaking ways and styles. We were not polite. I think that uh, by the end of it, there were a number of them that came to respect the fact that at least that we knew what we were doing, which I guess is okay. <laughs> the other unique aspect that was a shock to those of us who came from really indie filmmaking, and I started with Roger Corman, so you can't get more indie than that, is that everyone in their family had done the same job. And this is not obviously across the board, but there wasn't that same enthusiasm for, you know, let's get together and make a movie that we were used to. That being said, I think their craftsmanship was as fine, if not even more spectacular than anything I've seen before or since. And they did take complete pride in that. But it really is a, is a different approach to working. Once you are aware of the difference in work habit, you can adjust to it. Plus, as long as you know how to get the, you've got to get the product done, and everybody wants the same thing, they just approach it in a different way, and that's all part of our learning curve. And now it's it's different also because there are not people that are on staff that are assigned to your movie, you know, and and also the liquid alcohol based lunch, it's is not, not the same anymore. anymore. <laughs> I think when you when you want to take time out of a picture, you do a bit of everything. You trim shots, you take out a second here and a second there. At this time, obviously, we weren't cutting on the Avid yet, so we were, or, you know, on any kind of nonlinear digital editing system. So there was less of a tendency to kind of nickel and dime little tiny cuts of 10 frames here and 10 frames there. When you're cutting on a moviola, every cut had to be a splice that was opened up. So you tended to make lifts, which were full scenes or partial scenes. When I was cutting Titanic, I made all the lifts and all, you know, all the full scene lifts and partial scene lifts I could, and I was still miles out. So I went through the whole film for like a month and just took out 10 frames here and 10 frames there and actually got out like another five minutes. This is um, rear projection. So, you know, part of the pressure for do doing the visual effects in this film is we needed all these process plates. We needed all these projection plates. So the model unit had to be, had to be scrambled well ahead of time, actually producing kind of finished shots in a way that we could project on the set. Because we knew we wanted a specific look out all of these windows. We wanted to be able to have, you know, moisture on the window and dust and wind and all these sorts of things that would 
kind of degrade the image, so we wanted to have these projections done in advance. Four more weeks. Oh, man. Oh, we've got to get the other dropship from the Sulaco. I mean, there must be some way of bringing it down on remote. I like the, just the feeling of these guys, you know, just working the problem, just trying to figure it out. And there's always a moment when there's the thing you know you need to do. And, you know, Bishop just steps up and volunteers. This is a great, you know, kind of if you're claustrophobic, this is something you don't want to try at home. Get yourself welded into a pipe that's, you know, no wider than your shoulders. When I was a kid, we used to have a contest in my neighborhood. They were always building new subdivisions. And um, we used to have a contest to see who could crawl the furthest through the, uh, the water pipes that had just been laid. I was one because I have no claustrophobia. But I actually got stuck once about 100 meters into a water pipe. Had to back out. So that's a little moment from my childhood. <laughs> Lance does a curious little thing at the end of that close-up. I said, what was that? And he said, Bishop just realized he made a joke. And you can actually see that. If you know that that's what's in his head, you watch that shot. That's exactly what he's doing. Bishop realizes after the fact that he just made a joke. Because he's not human, he kind of doesn't know if it worked or not. Now, this was too freaky, I got to tell you. I wouldn't have been able to do this, Lance. How did you get in there in the first place? Look, just look, look, look how you get in. Get like, you just crawl in there, right? Just no yeah, way. but you got to lower yourself and then twist around. No, it's just a it's little the, It's the tight. shot of them, you putting the lid on. It's just a and little Don't well hurt on. your finger. That's the thing you say here, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a cute there. That but defines was, him. But huh? you found stuff like that, Lance, because you found it from your character. He's always trying to be of service, you know, yeah. like the gas company. Oh, this look at this shot. It. They were dragging a little camera on the tiniest wheels you've ever seen in your life in front of me. Oh, is that how they Yeah, are? yeah, it was a little teeny. Like just with a rope? I remember yeah. watching you shoot some of that, Lance. I think you were on another stage. They had a they had yeah. that pipe. I remember yeah. coming over and watching you do that. I never let them light me that way anymore. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> <That's> pretty rough. See you guys right behind it. I think editorially it's it's a fun moment. I like the build. I didn't do any editing directly on this film, but uh, I think that especially because it's film-based editing, with that kind of rapid cutting, I thought it had really good energy. You see a lot of that type of cutting now with the Abbott, obviously, because you don't have to make every splice manually. This is the Alamo told with six people. So the sentry guns are just the equivalent of the first couple of attacks. You know, I think it's great for boating. It's just coming at them like a wave. And if these guns don't stop them, they're screwed. I, I actually think it works pretty well, but you know, the studio talked me into taking it out. So I'm happy to see it restored in, in this uh, extended version. Ray Lovejoy is our editor, and it was a tremendous responsibility. And you've got to remember, this is before you have all of the Avid and Lightworks and you know any kind of digital editing. There was so much film, and we had a pretty short production and post-production schedule. And he did just a tremendous job. I hired Ray for one simple reason, because he had worked with Stanley Kubrick. It took him a while to really kind of get what I was trying to do with this movie. And a lot of his early cuts, quite honestly, I didn't really care for. And um, it's not that there was ever, ever any tension between us. It's just that I didn't feel like I was getting what I wanted. And Ray was getting really frustrated. And I remember toward the end, 
he cut the alien queen battle, you know, the, the power loader queen battle at the end of the film. And he was really nervous because he hadn't really given me the kind of action cutting that I really wanted, and I'd had to mess with it a lot. And there was another editor also who was cutting some stuff, and, and I was liking his stuff, his action cutting, better than Ray's. And Ray is just a dear guy and a really good editor, but, but he was just struggling with it. And so finally, he just grabbed all the film, locked himself in his room, said, don't bother me. Not like mean or anything, but just, I just gotta, I just gotta do this. And he went in and he cut the entire last kind of eight minutes of the picture. And he showed it to me very nervously, he cut it in like a day or two. And he showed it to me very nervously. And uh, I watched the whole thing and I said, it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. Don't change anything. And that was that. And he, he felt like it was such a huge victory, you know, because he had actually got it. He'd mastered the, the style for the film. Sigourney, you know, she's very liberal politically and despised all the idea of any kind of guns or anything and tried to talk me out of having them have weapons. And I said, no, they're Marines, they would have weapons. <laughs> she said, well, do I have to carry a weapon? And I said, yes. <laughs> she said, why? I said, because it's not Sigourney Weaver in the film, it's Ripley, and Ripley wants to survive. So I took her out shooting a Thompson machine gun out behind the, uh, the studio, and she fired off a 50-round magazine from the hip. And then she looked up at me with this kind of sly grin and said, that's really fun. <laughs> Said another liberal bites the dust. There were a couple things she asked me if she could do when we had our very first meeting. She wanted to die in the film, she wanted to not use guns, and she wanted to make love to the alien. And between the third and fourth film, she got to do all of those things. <laughs> but fortunately for this film, I said no to all of them. Even though I was petrified about the result, I thought, you know, she'd bolt from the project. But she didn't. She had a lot of really good ideas. I don't want to make it sound like she was, you know, but she did have certain very specific things that she thought should be done in the alien mythos. And uh, when she got to a position of power on the later film, she made that happen. This scene coming up with Ripley and, and Newt, which is the attack of the facehuggers, was a really, really tough scene to orchestrate and prepare for as far as uh, we think we're now back 16 or 17 years. So we don't have any kind of uh, digital animation, and there's not going to be any stop-motion animation, and these space suckers have really got to come to life. So we used, we created, uh, I think, a half-dozen different face huggers that would do different things to create the performance that's going to be coming up, including the our hero, which was had completely articulated hands, uh, multiple cables that had to be controlled by, I think, six puppeteers for one facehugger. We had one that would run across the floor. We called him our pull toy. We had, uh, we had stunt facehuggers that would, we could throw to hit the wall. We had every, we had actually two different heroes. And there's the one that crawls up over the, uh, the counter coming at Newt and and uh, then completely articulated one with tongue and, and fingers that Ripley would fight off with all of the cables down her arms, you know, through, through the whole sequence. And there's so much that happens in that that, you know, you, you think of as the face hugger that's coming after them and uh, multiple to create that one scene.
This is, to me, the creepiest part of the movie. Wow, this thing running around, that, that sound effects he did, of the, the, the face hugger. Oh, yeah. Ugh. The first scenes of this movie when Ugh. he did the chest buster. He took care of the, the last, the sequel, you know, the alien. Oh, yeah. He took care of it in five minutes. That oh, first yeah. scene. Oh, yeah. That it was a dream. Oh, yeah. That was Man, great. I thought it was so smart. It was just great. His storytelling. I think too. What just he made the, the sound effect. A, the sound effect. Oh, that scrabbling. Oh thing yeah. Like but that. just oh. the whole the way this whole thing was laid out in the first Alien and and the second one, the whole you Thank know, you, genesis of of the way it would start out in the pod and then it turned into the face hugger and then it turned into the alien. Yeah. A lot of this was done. Um, these sort of shots of it scuttling along the floor were done on our miniature. Stage that actual that shot where it just scuttled by was done right next to the 12 scale cargo lock. It was right at the base of the 12 scale cargo lock. It was a little set there, so Jim would have like five or six or seven little setups poked in between our miniatures, and you know we'd fog up the stage and get ready to shoot. And but he needed to shoot with no fog, so we'd clear the stage. He'd shoot his thing, and then we would continue on. So it was like one giant filmmaking unit where we were doing two or three miniature shots simultaneously and he was doing four or five live action inserts so it was yeah he just concentrated <laughs> dose of aliens filming it's funny it's very hard to see paul riser as such an evil guy after so many years of his tv series boy he used to hate to ride to work with me in the morning i used to ride to work with him and he didn't like it no no he hated it because i was like a real primitive man I, you know i was He's just—he's a sophisticated you comic, you, you know. No, no, I was, uh, I was always uh -oh. like grunting and groaning, and <laughs> smoking, smoking. Burping. He hated that. He hated everything about me. <laughs> what a boring yeah, ride that was. So, oh. Like you've been carrying this this baggage a while. Right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. This is a good forum, man. Another right. rip, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was because of the character he was playing. You that know, he was he's playing? such a prissy kind of corporate guy. In oh, this. yeah. Mm -hmm. It's always tough, I think, when you're in these kind of movies. Especially, I was, I was talking about this earlier, too. When, you, when you're young, you know, you're, if you're playing the good guys, you're always kind of hanging with the good guys. Yeah. You don't really trust yourself as an actor to be able to become friendly with, 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 yeah, the, with bad the bad guys. guys. Yeah. Yeah. Big scene. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it's, we were too serious of actors to, to be able to. Yeah, he was dealing, this was a big he thing was actually for him. Reading, he was reading the paper the whole time, and it was like I was interrupting him if I talked. To him. Right, so you I, could always ride to work with me. I guess you didn't want to ride to work with me, huh? No, I was in a different area. <laughs> Shit, you're right around the corner. It's How come we didn't ride area. together? Yeah, you didn't want me with you. Bullshit. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So we're just like yanking these face huggers around. On, they're just we call them. I call them rubber chicken face huggers because they were just these floppy ones. The crawling one had a mechanism inside it, but most of the time when it's just leaping around, that was shot backwards. That thing where the tail wraps around her neck, we just pulled the tail off and shot it backwards. You know, there was a pretty good mechanism built into the the ones that are really articulated, but a lot of the time we were just yanking them around on fishing line and doing it in cuts. Now, people probably wonder why I had him shoot the window before he jumped through it. But uh, the idea there was it's tempered glass and you have to shatter, you have to get the crystal structure of the glass to shatter first before you can go through it. So this is a bunch of grown people fighting a rubber chicken, basically. But of course, it's the actors that make the effects real in our minds. 
Ugh. Great sequence. I love yeah. the the red light that he mm-hmm. uses in this too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the warning light that happens in the the other sequence too, when the aliens are coming through the roof. Look at this. That there that was go. a great sequence. This is another scene that James Cameron sort of sets up as the family scene, and it's sort of just the three of us there as a family, ready for Alien Three. David Fincher did a really good job, I thought, you know, photographically and and so on. I, I mean, I think it's. It's really a well-made film visually. It's just, it's kind of a slap in the face of the fans who invested in, you know, Newt and Hicks and all of those character relationships. And I understand the instinct, of course, which is you have to make it your own. I just don't think you should make it your own at the expense of what people like, (laughs) personally. But, you know, everybody's going to make their own decisions. But, you know, I mean, I had to change some things and make it my own on the on my film and I know that you know Ridley probably watched it and and wasn't pleased with a lot of things he probably wasn't pleased with the fact that he hadn't made it you know but um, you know I think it's tough it's tough to see somebody continue on something that you've started but then you learn to just get over it because that's the nature of this business you know I I think the trick to this type of film is you just take it utterly seriously You don't step outside yourself and try to have fun with it or try to be campy, try to wink at the audience. You just take it absolutely seriously and you don't give the audience a chance to question what you're doing. And if the actors can sell it, then it works. Now this is a distinction. I never got the sense in the first film that the alien actually had an intelligence that allowed it to manipulate their technology. But I didn't see that necessarily as as a barrier here because certainly these creatures have been around longer you know if you have to remember the the alien in the first film had only been alive for 24 hours it was still an infant even though it had grown full size these aliens have had weeks or months to figure things out there's no reason why they couldn't figure out how the electrical system worked and that sort of thing i'm not saying that they're technological but i think the rudimentary stuff so the implication here is they actually are pretty clever and i think it's clear by the end of the film that the alien queen knows how to operate an elevator if nothing else See, it's amazing how such a low-tech little mm-hmm. device that we that Jim sets up early on really builds the tension, the suspense. You don't have to see them. You just mm-hmm. see that locator, oh. and you realize they're getting closer with a little sound effect. It's hard to believe, but this is one of the first films we worked on that we worked with a, a video to look at our effects. Because prior to that, you would shoot a shot and you'd have to go by your perception at the moment as to whether it worked or not, and looking at dailies the next day, you didn't see an instant replay. But on this film, we were using a video tap and and an offside video camera on some of the shots to analyze what worked and what didn't. Well, it was fairly expensive to have a video tap camera. Yeah. And most effect stuff, you know, the cameras that you used were, you know, these, these old Mitchell cameras, they were great cameras, but they didn't have video tap, and it was just an expense a lot of times you couldn't afford. More welding. Just don't look at it. I know, yeah. it's like, look away, <laughs> you'll be blinded. Yeah. Weld it, but don't look at it at the <laughs> same time. Put your hand right there, don't look at it. Is this where you bite it? Yeah, yeah, that's a great scene. No. You know. Yeah. Well, pretty yeah, soon. So, I mean, yeah. so I'm going to keep through. talking, though, even if I'm dead. Even I'll, if you're I'll keep dead. Talking. 
I had to ask Jim. I don't know if you remember, Bill, but I had to ask Jim to kind of go after you. That he was just going to have you being pulled down, you know. And I'm like, God, that's it. You know, let me go after him. Let me. And it was kind of a nice thing. To yeah, do. I remember. Well, I, I, I think about how many, sh- how how much shooting we did in the sequence with those pulse rifles and the, like the full loads. Oh, I mean, we were, man, we were I, and I we was were, standing to the right of yeah, you, I know. so I got you to eat You were catching all the clips, or people, they, you know. I, mean, I was catching we, the shells. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was hardcore. This was a hardcore sequence as far as uh, well. It was the first time. Every, you know, you got the earplugs in. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. but it was one of the few times we really got to sh- let you know, go. shoot those guns off, which was great because we were carrying them all the time. This is it right here. This is a great. This is a great shot. This whole that sequence one right, right there, here. looking up and seeing these dudes. Mm, this is a great POV. Yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole nest of them tanks coming out of there. Look out! They're coming out of the woodwork. There we go. Oh, let them have it, Vasquez. Come on, Hicks. Man, those. Yeah. Get your gun off. Well, the alien head in the first film was very smooth. The top of the head was very smooth. Underneath it, it had a skull shape and a ribbed design. And um, originally, it was designed to see that through a kind of transparent surface in the Giger design. I thought that what was underneath the surface was more interesting than the final look, so we just modified it slightly. So we used a lot of strobe lights to simulate the backblast of their weapons. So every time they're firing weapons, we're aiming strobes at the actors which created a nice sense of a lot of a lot of energy flying around as they fire these weapons. Did you say motherfucker, Bill? I think I did. I think, I think I'm, I've think used up my quota there. <laughs> it could have been my quota. <laughs> you want some? I remember you had that. That's a good one. You want some? Come on, I got it. <laughs> and then I get pulled apart. Oh, man. That was good. Uh, and that thing comes up right. Oh, oh, nasty. Oh, goes. And from here on out, the thing. The just movie kind of dies, right? The movie's just not quite the same. <laughs> yeah. okay. He, he already kinda, had the script for Near Dark. Actually, what I was going to say that from here on out, this movie just doesn't. No, stop. no, you had the script for Near Dark already. <laughs> you were like thinking oh. about that. The movie just goes into overdrive <laughs> from here on out, right to the bitter end. It just doesn't stop. There's also an editing technique that Jim likes to use, which is blank frames in between. The discharge from the weapons sort of whites out the frame. It really helps this kind of staccato cutting. I was driving them nuts because I was having them like splice together individual frames of like white flash leader and stuff. And the negative cutter said we had more edits because we did a lot of flash frames and one frame cuts and stuff in that sequence. We had more edits in this real 12 of aliens than in any complete film the editor negative cutter had done before. So the whole high-tech war machine has degenerated to the point where they have to follow the little kid or they're gonna die. You ever notice how movie air ducts are always big enough to get through? It bears no resemblance to the real world. It's all based on the theory that the audience has never been inside an air duct. Air ducts are not designed for people to walk through. <laughs> but it's a conceit. It's also a conceit taken from the first film. Supposedly, the way I survived in the colony was going around everywhere in the air ducts. And we supposedly played a game 
and part of the reason I was called Newt is because I was so quick in the air ducts and no one really liked me on the colony because I would beat them at the game. Fortunately, it ended up kind of saving us from the aliens at this time. For this air duct set, we had the vertical air ducts so that we could actually drop the aliens down with the monofilament so that you would feel, and you'll see it in here, feel them crawling on the ceilings and the walls, that bug aspect of them. My cameo's coming up. Who were you? Vesquez had yeah. never fired a handgun. Uh, Jeanette Goldstein hadn't. Uh-huh. Um, she was living in England, not a lot of handguns. And um, for the wide shot, she was great. But for the close-up of her killing the alien, her recoil wasn't accurate. And unlike today when I'm on a set, I dressed up in suits on this film, and the crew couldn't believe it. That's me. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's me. All right, girl. All of the close-ups of the handgun handgun? firing at the uh, alien was me. But people couldn't believe it since I always dressed up in suits because I I needed something to give myself that appearance of authority. When I came in in the fatigues and fired a gun... They saw the real game. They were pretty surprised. And and Jim told me that... um, I was in my office at the time, and, and the crew was saying, what are we going to do? You know, who, who here has ever fired a handgun before? And he said, my wife has. <laughs> he said, I'm going to go get her, and she's going to do this shot. And I did. Jeanette has very fair skin, freckles, and had hair down to her waist and blue eyes. So somehow we managed to see that we, we cut all her hair off and gave her dark makeup and brown contact lenses, she was actor enough to actually pull off, you know, this Hispanic character. That was a a tough, by the way, physical, actual physical effect. There was nothing optical. That fireball came flying through that, uh, that corridor. We didn't have digital anything back then. We didn't have digital fire. This is the coolest part. It was a shoot, it was about three stories high and it had a big old curve and a big old thing at the end. And I kept sometimes messing up so that I could redo it. Yeah, see, there's lots of important survival tips in this film. Never grab the jacket, grab the hand. Unless you have a newt finder device in your pocket, then you're okay. Now, I seem to remember that Gene Siskel had a big problem with this scene because of the, the jeopardy of a little child with an alien monster. That never occurred to me, but, you know, I wasn't a parent when I made this film. It probably would bother me more now because I could em- empathize too much with the child. The thing that never, I guess maybe never bothered me about the idea of putting a, a child in jeopardy is that somehow you just know inherently that... Ripley's not going to let her die, no matter what it takes. I know they spent a lot of time on the first film, finding a big guy, building a suit that, uh, you know, the, the tall guy could wear. But in watching that movie and studying it, I realized that the alien almost never appears in the same frame with a person for scale. And so we just decided to use normal six-foot-tall people because we needed a lot of them. We knew we couldn't find ten seven-and-a-half-foot-tall guys. 
Probably the only exception to that is that shot where the alien rises up behind her, but I figured that wasn't a problem because she was, you know, small anyway. We create the scale in our minds anyway. Michael was so good in this. This shot is in my showreel still. If you examine it now, you can see the monofilament on the tail pulling it up. Hate to low-tech it, but it's what it was. Goodbye. I love just, you just see the head as it, as it, the little doll head kind of as it sinks. That's where Jim just over and over and over and over again has those images of, mm-hmm. like that. There it is, right there. Mm. Yeah. The eyes kind of close. Huh. This, you know, this is where they use that, in that uh, elevators where they use that AB smoke on there. Oh, that stuff's nasty. Oh. Huh. Yeah. They use it in near dark. They've the outlawed that. Oh. Yeah, I know. Remember that shit? Is it outlawed yeah. now? Hardcore. Yeah, it's outlawed. Hardcore yeah. stuff. Because oh. you breathe that in and you get lung damage. It's tough when you're doing these shots, too, because, you know, it becomes all about the smoke reaction, yeah, exactly. right? And God almighty. The smoke is, I've always thought that, the, you know, the worst job on any set is the guy who makes the smoke, especially Jim's movies. Less smoke, more smoke, waft it up, waft it down, fire that guy, get a new one smoke guy. You know, the elevators, the elevator doors never close fast enough for me. It's just a kind of pet peeve with the way the world is wired. shot of the vest getting hit by acid was an insert that was shot on M stage uh, as we were shooting the sequence where the dropship is flying out of the um, atmosphere processor it's, as it's blowing up. We are literally, Jim was shooting with his back to us and uh, he was actually occasionally stepping on our, um, on our track that a camera ran on uh, while, while that was being photographed and then he would step off the track and then we'd run the camera down the track. As well as it was AB smoke again, which was kind of drifting over into our area, which made it hard to breathe. It's miniature on wires here. Again, recalling that these miniatures are moving very fast in reality, and we're seeing them here now slow down. The reason for running the camera at high speed uh, for miniature work is it gives it a lot more scale. It gives it the size that's needed to make it feel believable. If you were to see it as it actually happened, it would look pretty, uh, pretty much like the small scale that it is. So this is why it's done. We'd gone back in after we built the atmosphere processor miniature, and um, I remember before we did this shot, we had a whole crew of, well, whole crew of four or five guys, including us, running in there and adding a lot of extra detail because we're pushing into the interior of it. So we had like a a day and a half of, of heavy-duty uh, micro-detailing going on there. Well, this movie laid the foundation for me for a lot of stuff. I mean, it was just... Again, it was working for Jim that was really fantastic. I remember running into Jim when he'd been hired to write this. I was at the airport, and he was handing off a parcel to some courier... I don't know why he was doing that. I guess because they were setting up shop in England. And I said, Jim, what are you doing? He said, I'm writing the sequel to Alien. I said, hey, write me a good part in there. You know, I just <laughs> I kidded him. And then six months later, I tried out for it in, in England, and I didn't think I'd gotten it. You know, your friends are usually the last people to hire you. Mm. So you have no mystique with them. 
And then yeah, I got a yeah. call. I almost took Police yeah, Academy true. 3 or something, and then I got this. Police Academy Boy, 3. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> hey, more man. money than I'd ever seen in my I was, life. I was up for that. I think they I think they hired Bob Wildcat Goldfoy <laughs> I don't know who got the better deal, but I think I did. I think everybody'd been sort of looking at the film as a well made picture, but you know, in the sound and the visual effects and so on. But we were, you know, really pleasantly surprised when Sigourney got nominated. Not that we didn't think her performance was worthy of it, but because historically there was no real precedent for a horror film being honored by the Academy for acting. And the fact that they took it seriously enough and took her seriously enough to do that, you know, I think still is a real, real milestone. Interesting thing coming up. Another shot that Jim stuck me with but it's really kind of fun is when we meet the Queen Alien. This is, this is going to come much later. Uh, she ends up back in the uh, elevator shaft in fact, the elevator shaft is not nearly big enough to hold the Queen Alien, so she really only her front half is in the shaft. The rest of her is sticking out the back of the elevator on the set, but you never really think about it in the movie when that elevator opens and the Queen comes out that she would never be able to fit in it. And since 90% of the Queen Alien stuff in this movie is all full size, we had to deal with the sets based on the reality of her size and the reality of the sets. I'll never forget Jim coming to me when he first had the uh, written the screenplay and said, I've got this great idea for the Queen Alien. We'll get a couple of guys, we'll put him in a suit, she'll have four arms, we'll carry it with, on a crane arm, we'll have puppeteers working the legs, and I'm looking at him going, this is completely out of his mind. And then a split second later, well, no, it's Jim, so it probably will work. And... Remember we when we did it the with ga- the, the garbage bag the test? Garbage, garbage bag test, yeah. Yeah, foam, exactly. Foam do it first. Bags, yeah. Make sure it works before you do the design. Mm-hmm. So we rented a little crane behind my studio and built a little body form for two stuntmen, ski poles for arms, foam core legs, rod puppets, foam core head, and they looked at it and went, you know what? It works. Same thing with the um, power loader. We did Mm -hmm. it all out of foam core first. Make sure the concept worked. Of course, unfortunately, in building it was too heavy and had to be supported by By the the, uh, wires. Yep. But you'd never know that in the movie. Nope. The queen, when she drops out of the drop ship, she's virtually a huge marionette, and there are wires in the shot, and we never see them. Wires on each of her legs, her entire body, and she comes down out of it. It's just... 14-foot, hydraulically-operated marionette. I learned to have a great deal of respect for second-unit directors doing this movie because I had to shoot second-unit small shots and big shots and to have to make sure that every light and everything was exactly the way Jim wanted it so that it fit in seamlessly makes you realize that that job, which fortunately I haven't done since working with Jim... It's a rough job because it's not being creative. It's actually making sure you're doing exactly what the director wants. It originally started that Sigourney was supposed to have run into Paul Reiser, and he did a cocoon scene as well. And she gave him a grenade. And later on in the movie, there's a part where it's a big old boom, and it was supposed to have been him 
setting off the grenade. But obviously no one really knows any of that because it was cut out of the movie. I run into Sigourney once in a blue moon. We'll run into each other at a airport lounge or something like that. And <laughs> she's always great. And yeah. you know, she, she remembers Louise's name, my wife's name. And wow. very thoughtful woman. Yeah. Really thoughtful Gracious. woman. Gracious, yeah. She is. She made this series what it is. I mean, without her, it just hmm. wouldn't be the same. But also, Ridley Scott and Jim, they both just really showed up. Loaded for Bear on yeah. both these films. You know, the dream was... I've never really followed the other movies. I, I couldn't really tell you much about... I thought Ridley was going to do the third and Jim the fourth. And that was David Fincher. I've, yeah. I've seen a lot of his movies and liked them. Yeah, he's great. Now, this is funny. I, I personally installed Carrie in this because I wanted to make sure it was done in a way that wouldn't hurt her or, or you know create any discomfort. So I'm smearing this gack all over her, and she looks up at me and says very quietly, it should be illegal for you to do this to little kids. <laughs> I thought that was, she, was, she was just winding me up, she wasn't serious. Yeah, the cocoon was probably one of the most horrendous scenes that I had to film. There was a, a little hole on the side, and they made it just big enough for me to crawl through and it was all made out of fiberglass and I couldn't actually even put my feet down. I would sit in there for about what seemed like hours on end, but I doubt it was. And I couldn't rest my feet on it in case it broke. I couldn't do anything in case it broke. And we just had to keep replaying it over and over and over again. And it took days. And when Sigourney actually tears apart the cocoon, since it was made out of fiberglass, she actually tore her hands all up. They were all bleeding and everything. This was just not a fun scene to film. It took forever. We also had to replicate Carrie for this because of all the shots that Sigourney was going to have to carry her right, in. Right, and she was too heavy. Uh -huh. And it was and also so Sigourney's a, back. Yep, exactly. So we, we built a little uh, replication of Carrie's body and... And had it was actually a really beautiful uh, dummy that she carries through much of the uh, the scene after she saves her. And it's not enough to build a fourteen foot queen alien. It's got to have a head that comes out of its its helmet like head. This was a great shot. And this was a combination of of miniature. Then we built the last part of the egg sack and attached it to the full-size queen. And this is all full-size. This is full-size, 14-foot queen when we see her for the first time. Now, that's a big puppet and the extruding head. All the details. We had to come up with a new way of doing the teeth, making them translucent rather than metal, as with the alien warriors. When Jim first came to me, I had a painting of the queen alien and just like with the Terminator. He'd already had her designed. I had some ideas and started doing some drawings myself and of the of the rear legs. Ultimately ended up being virtually Jim's original design, but I'll never forget the two of us sitting on drawing boards at his house where he would be drawing one part of her body and I'd be drawing the other part and it would be all coming together. 
He's one of the most talented artists I ever had working for me. <laughs> <laughs> I think he remembers it a little differently. Yeah. <laughs> you don't think he'd look at it like I, that I don't as, think so. a, as an employee of Stan Winston's? Oh, that's interesting. I also love the sequence when Ripley is communicating with the Queen, which is, you know, mm-hmm. see, I can wipe out your children. Mm-hmm. I shot that shot. You know, she wants yeah. the queen to call off her warriors, and when the queen doesn't, yeah. she goes to town. Kill the eggs. Wasn't there a puppeteer whose hand was down through the ovipositor yeah. dropping the egg when you first Yeah, that was see Nigel. It? He'd push it out, and then it was on a plex rod underneath the egg, <laughs> and then somebody was under the set to kind of bring it and plant it in place, otherwise it would just roll over and fall down. I believe my job was to take that egg and shove it back into the ovipositors. Now, I know Sigourney still has liberal guilt over this whole scene. (laughs) But this is the classic, you know, kind of cathartic purging with fire. You purge the nightmare by burning it out, and, you know, the idea that this is the only way she's ever going to have psychological closure. Not, by the way, a new idea in films. And probably one that doesn't have a whole lot of basis in real human psychology. Feels right to the audience, but I think if you're really that traumatized, it wouldn't help you that much. But she sure unleashes holy hell on these guys. The egg sack getting shot here was actually, uh, we had a sharpshooter fire, I'm not sure what kind of weapon, but he fired a real bullet into the miniature egg sack. Now this is miniature. Those, that's a front projection shot. That's front projection. With a lot of smoke in the air, it tends to take the edge off of it. It's, uh, it was a bit heavy, obscuring the plate. Now, there's a shot here where the, um, the platform the Queen is on is a big explosion when she tosses these her weapons belt here. And uh, the Queen, when it falls, is actually a quarter-scale miniature in which we use a double mirror setup. We had a beam splitter in the foreground reflecting large-scale fire that was off to the right of the camera, and behind the puppet was another mirror that was angled off to the left where we had another very large-scale fire. Now, we had a we had a full-sized alien queen, and then we had this miniature one. And the miniature one flails a little bit. I mean, the alien queen design, you know, could be created so beautifully today with, uh, with uh, CG animation. We didn't, you know, that didn't exist then. So we had to figure out how to do it with, you know, more conventional means. So it's barely kind of a kind of a Bonraku puppet more than anything. This um, electrical charge effect was actually footage we acquired from uh, Gene Warren from Fantasy II. Um, he had several hundred feet he had shot for the first Terminator film, so we, we needed that type of um, sort of generic lightning effects, and we um, had that film shipped over to us. It was actually Tesla, so give Tesla credit coil. Where, Tesla coil footage, yes. Give credit where credit is due. Once again, all, just the little subtle things, like the countdown, reminding uh-huh. the characters in the audience that there's a ticking clock. It's a huge queen alien. She comes around the corner here. It's one of our tougher shots for her to come out around the corner and see her right here and looking at her. Neat performance. i never forget my first conversation, actually, with Steven Spielberg about Jurassic Park. When he said to me, he says, well, you built a 14-foot alien full-size that would work. Why can't you do a dinosaur? Everything leads to something else. 
the water weenie and the bis mm -hmm. to the T1000 and T2. Everything's R&D for mm -hmm. something you do later on. And this is the shot. Uh, the queen just thinking, looking, mm -hmm. seeing the little cock in the head, knows what she's going to do. I got a plan. I'm not stupid. That woman can act. Obviously, the female computer voice that's counting down is an intentional tie-in to the first film to create the same sense of panic as the clock runs down. And then this is what you expect to happen, that Bishop completely betrays them. But I think what you don't expect is that he didn't, that he turns out to be a good guy. People always expect the worst of others. They never expect the best. And so when a, you know, when a character actually lives up to their promises and, and uh, you know, Bishop said he was, gonna, he was gonna stay, and he did, you don't expect it, you don't see it coming. This is a front screen projection shot here. There's a dropship comes up behind Ripley on, the, on this landing uh, platform. The element that we shot for that was shot at high speed and uh, is pointing it out, the fact that because the camera is running at such high speed, the actual movement was so fast, it was almost not possible to move an object that quickly. And look at this. Big old queen inside that little elevator. Well, just keep it dark inside. It's a black curtain. <laughs> There's a black curtain on the back of it that she's coming through. Here's where you think it's all lost, and there it is. And it's hard to imagine how fast it actually moved in real time. Yeah, any time there are explosions in the miniature, and there's a miniature that's supposed to be traveling fast, it had to be traveling, of course, three, four, five times as fast. This down view was extended with mirrors on the stage floor. It was not apparent in that shot with the fireball coming up, the earlier cut of that as you, uh, you see this sort of set continuing very far down, but those were actually plex mirrors laid on the studio floor. In addition to the pyro, we actually used a lot of flash bulbs buried in the set to give uh, extra flashes. I think this is another instance where the score is so terrific uh -huh. as well. When we were in the Great scoring score. stage, this was the last cue that Jamie had finished for the movie. Really? Yes, and then there was no... It's like, okay, uh -huh. and then what? Oh, I actually didn't get around to the last cue of the film. And in a miraculous burst of creativity, he generated the final cue overnight. I didn't really know how to work with an orchestral composer when I made this film. I don't think James knew how to work with directors, to be perfectly honest, that well. I mean, I think he was a brilliant composer at that point, but he had a lot to learn and I had a lot to learn. That, by the way, that nuclear explosion is, is, a, is a big light bulb literally a light bulb covered with cotton. We didn't, you know, we didn't have any budget for a, for a big effect there, so we just kind of made something up. But uh, it didn't create problems between us personality-wise, but I went to the scoring session expecting to hear the movie, and an orchestra started to play stuff that didn't work. The music was beautiful, but it didn't work necessarily on a scene-by-scene -scene basis. And I didn't know what to do about that because there, were, there was no second round. It was like, okay, here's your score. James went off to another film. We wound up doing an awful lot of music editing and moving stuff around and tracking it from scene to scene. So, you know, he was never really happy with the outcome, even though he got an Academy Award nomination.
because it didn't necessarily reflect what he had created. And I didn't like the process very much. So when we got together on Titanic and I talked to him, I said, what can we do so that that doesn't happen again? Because I really like your music and I really want you to do this film. And so we worked out a methodology by which we'd communicate better. And that was a great experience, by contrast. I'm sorry if I scared you. That platform was just becoming too unstable. This great effect of the queen tail coming out through his body. It was basically a, a soft tail that we pulled out with a monofilament, and it works great, and you would never know it. Alec Gillis was throwing. You see, as after Bishop is torn in half here, you see one, like his torso going away into the top of his body, mm-hmm. the top part go the other way. Well, Alec would throw it, and it would land in these goofy, ridiculous positions. Setting up for this one shot yep. right here was two days of work yep. to get that one yep. that shot right there. This shot of it just landing, shot over and over and over again. I remember was, seeing the dailies. The arms would land yeah. back behind its head and so forth. It was, it was one of those funny moments. I don't know what happened to the dailies, but... Now, this sequence, again, used the combination of the full-sized and the quarter-scale queen as needed for the action, where there was a lot of movement uh, traveling across the floor. You'd use the miniature. If it were in place or close-up, you'd use the full-size. And this is the biggest marionette in the history of motion pictures. She is every technology we had. She's rod puppet. She's hydraulic, which was new to us. She's a breakthrough. She's radio-controlled, wired, and rod, all in that one beast. And seamlessly intercut. Uh With this miniature puppet of Doug's. Yep, with a miniature puppet of Ripley. Uh Uh-huh. The sequence coming up in the mano-a-mano fight between... Ripley and the Power Loader and the Alien Queen, we used the movie cam, which was able to change the frame rate within one shot, and we're able to start at 24 frames per second and then go down to, I don't know if it was 18 or 20 frames per second, so that when the internal jaws came out, they whipped out. You know, when you when you really analyze this scene, I mean, it's all just quick cuts, and the alien's hand is in one shot, and you see a bit of the head in the hand, but... You know, it's, it's just all done with, with puppeting. I think it's actually, uh, it's actually good. I think the intention today would be to do it with uh, computer graphics and celebrate that and see it more full figure. And I think seeing it in bits and pieces is actually more powerful. This was a hard shot. This is the pylon rig. You can actually see it behind her a little bit, kind of like a long crane arm. I remember seeing the film Midnight Screening on Hollywood Boulevard, and that line brought the house down. People stood up and cheered. It's probably the most gratifying moment of my producing career was the reaction to that shot. When we screened this film for the first time, we knew we had a hit. The audience went crazy. And, you know, it was an industry audience, so they they can go either way on you. They'll either be very negative or they'll be very celebratory of a film that they think is working. Now, once again, here you have a mixture of full-sized power loader and queen and miniature. This is all pretty much full-sized right in here, which really shows you how well articulated what Stan Winston's guys did. So these shots of the um, power loader taking big swings and actually knocking the queen to the ground were quarter-scale shots. That's the kind of action that would have been very hard to stage successfully with any kind of dynamics 
in full scale. It's hard to believe, thinking about it, this looks like a heavyweight machine and it was actually just kind of flimsy plastic. Vacuform plastic, you'd probably lift a lot of that if it were in pieces, most that, of it. That whole arm, just that claw mechanism only weighed, you know, a pound or so. He had had some sort of a counterweight to help, you know, because so much weight is pushed out forward, but you forget again that there was a, a bodybuilder inside of there helping to uh, manipulate it. Basically, Sigourney was standing on the fronts of his feet, as I remember. Yeah. It was something to that effect. And there was a quarter-scale version of uh, the uh, airlock that was also made, as well as the full-size. So depending on the shots, it would uh, the requirements, you'd use one or the other. Interesting that, that we chose not to score this. I just felt it had a greater sense of reality and, and, and it might seem a little over the top if it was being driven by music, whereas you, you sort of take it, it plays very real somehow without music. I think the score cuts in when the, um, when the queen grabs her, yeah. Of course, you always have that lever right there that allows you to depressurize your entire spacecraft. It's a little bit like the button in the Krell lab that blows up the planet that you put in the children's learning room. And this is so terrific. We had a little uh, trolley underneath the set that he would ride on. Of course, it's shot as the queen falls away. Falling away was done in miniature. We had taken uh, pieces of the set up to the top of the stage and dropped them away. And we actually had people physically holding a uh, large sheet of black cloth, sort of fireman style, standing on the on the stage floor, and we dropped dropped these pieces from the top of the stage. There's an interesting thing here that I'm going to give away when uh, Newt slides. Bishop, you see his body. You see how the gag is done. You know, Lance is down through the set. The funny thing is it really shows you how people watch a movie. They watch where the hands are going to grab, whether he's going to miss her or not, and they don't see a bad visual effect that's happening on the other side of the screen. But I think I was watching it with an audience for about the fifth time before I ever saw that myself, because I always looked where I was supposed to look. Now, the, well, the queen was uh, stop motion, right, coming out of the Sulaco? The exterior shot of the, the queen was, I think, puppeted a blue screen. Yeah, oh, was it? Okay. Puppeted blue yeah. screen. It look, it's got a, uh, a bit of a stop motion quality, but it actually is just... Uh, the original thought was to use stop motion in this film, but it, the problems of, of time as well as the kind of action that well, stop motion uh, creates is different than puppeted. Well, there was also a lot of questions about all this these slime elements because the thing is always dripping, and there's a lot of um, kind of real-time elements that were mixed in that would have made it very hard to do a stop motion. But again, time was a factor, and uh, we had to do you know, a shot a day or every couple of days, and... Um, and sometimes cover these things with multiple cameras. It would have been very impractical to do it that way. Well, she recovers from her traumatic event pretty quickly, but then she's been through a lot, so <laughs> she's kind of used to this stuff by now, I guess. So I didn't think it was appropriate to show Sigourney in quite the same kind of sexy underwear that she was in at the end of Alien, I'm sure much to the fans' disappointment. Well, it's a movie I'll always be proud to have been a part of. And, Me uh, too, man. It's great to get together and, and revisit it after so many years. It, it was still, so much it fun holds making up. it, wasn't it? It was a great experience. This was my first film, and, you know, 
Was that your first film yeah, too? Uh, oh, yeah, no, he gave yeah. me my first job. It's like a big. Yeah, uh, it's amazing to sort of it step is. into that, and then yeah, you do so many stuff. movies though, and you, you you know you have such high hopes for. For, every, one for every one of them and, yeah. and it's only a few that really turn out to be as great as this one that's why I think it's uh, yeah, you know it's so really special rare. yeah it really is rare and, I, and you know and I think at the time we knew we were had a great script we had a great director who really knew how to put this thing on film and there was a great camaraderie amongst all of us you mm -hmm. know it was great to have this kind of common purpose and knowing that we were making a great science fiction classic i don't think there was any question in any of our minds that we were involved with a great film right no, from the no, start there was no doubt yeah. there was no i mean doubt. when we showed up on the sets in london and and to see the stagecraft that they had done for this movie and all the that, work that, that and that's great. why you know when people ask me and talk to me about uh, working for jim cameron i mean that's that's why it's so great to work with him? Because you know you have he you're in you know, good you're, hands. You're in great oh, hands. You're in good there's, hands. A, there's a possibility that it's going to be a great, great movie, mm. a really good possibility, and uh, that's that's yeah, what we've I, all had hits and misses since, and, and and you know again, but it it is a filmmaker's medium. I mean, when you go into a movie like this, though, you know you just give that that extra added whatever it is because you know that there's a shot. You know, that it, it surprised could be. me how this sort of you know went across lines of people who, who love science fiction, but beyond that, you know, you don't have to be a science fiction genre buff to enjoy it at all. I mean, or it wouldn't last as long as it did. Yeah, that's true. And what a challenge to, to, to be the director of the sequel to Alien, yeah. which, like you were saying earlier, really revolutionized science fiction films really in many did, ways. Man. I mean, this was the first monster to come down the pike that was so intricate and interesting and, and had the whole the way it evolved and mm -hmm. the Geiger design of the original monster and to be have to to be bold enough to go yeah I'll write and direct the sequel jeez <laughs> tough duty you know tough I duty. don't think anybody else could have pulled it off I had so much fun in the whole aliens experience it's once in a lifetime experience. opportunity yeah definitely who can say that their name comes up second in the credits, not very many people. Wow, they actually make that movie? <laughs> For $18 million. Boring out watching it. And it was what, 60 some odd day shoot? Amazing. It was like a 65 day shoot. Very proud. We did good. Let's do it and again. Hats off to you, Jim. <laughs> Man kicks butt, doesn't he? He's the maestro. Mm. I think in terms of actual technique, it's crude compared to films that are that are made now. But I think in terms of storytelling, you know, it's as good as I'll probably ever be. And and uh, you know, which is really what filmmaking is all about. It's it's about the people. It's about the relationships. Of course, then they made the third film, killed everybody. <laughs>